Hello, I'm Brendan, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I just want to uh, start off just saying thank you so much, uh, Steiny, picking us up at the airport, making that easy. Um, Thor, uh, hosting us, putting us up. Terrific house, awesome. Um, and Gunnar, for helping out putting this all together and meeting us up, uh, meeting up with us. And uh, I know I'm probably telling Terrell their names, terrible. You guys forgive me. I'll slaughter them. Uh, I know no Icelandic, not even swear words, so sorry. Um, and John uh, uh, met us up there at uh, Akariri. Did I say that right? Uh, ooh, got one right. Anyways, um, so my sobriety date is October 18th, 1991. Um, I, I, I'm not that old. I did get sober young, uh, but we'll get to that. Um, so I just want to start off uh, really talking about where I came from. And, uh, you know, kind of the, the family and the household where my, uh, where a lot of this started. And I'll be clear up front that my family isn't the reason I'm an alcoholic. Circumstances didn't make me an alcoholic. But I think it is important to talk about some of that stuff and where I came from because recovery isn't just about physically getting sober, right? Separated from alcohol. Sobriety really is about beyond that. What happens after you stop drinking? When you're sitting in the rooms and your head's spinning and you're going crazy and you're sitting there at night wondering, God, am I ever going to not wish I was dead? You know? And going to meetings going, this is supposed to work, this is not going to work. You know? Seriously, right? You know? And uh, sometimes going to meetings and feeling worse than when you first came. You know? And wondering, if this is the solution, I'm screwed. And uh, so with my family, I uh, come from a large Irish Catholic family. I have four brothers, no sisters. Um, we didn't have any girls in my family until I started having kids uh, for like 75 years. We used to joke that we assimilated women into the family. Uh, there was nothing but daily boys. There was never daily girls. Uh, we married you into the family if it was going to happen. So um, my, uh, my family, though, on the outside, and the reason I talk about it, we all come from different backgrounds. Um, different households. Sometimes things look crazy on the outside, and they are crazy on the inside. Mine was a little bit like that, but everything looked really good on the outside. I mean, really good on the outside. Everything looked like it was normal. My dad was an attorney. He was a Notre Dame graduate, University of Notre Dame uh, Law School in Iowa. Um, he, he was a city attorney in the city I grew up in, Redmond, Washington, um, which you guys might know that place from Microsoft. It's where Microsoft headquarters is in Redmond, Washington. Um, so that's where I grew up, and... Uh, my dad, was a, my dad was a drinker, and my dad would come home from long days at the office, and he had these, mug, uh, these little glass jars, these little scotch glasses and stuff, and uh, he would throw in a couple ice cubes, he'd throw in a little bit of scotch, he'd start drinking, and with dad, you didn't know what you were going to get. It was either happy-go-lucky drunk or the evil, violent drunk, and you really didn't know which one you were going to get. So as a precaution, you pretty much, we just kind of hit we just would go to our separate rooms or separate areas. We'd leave, just get away because things usually didn't go well with Dad when he, once he got home. The thing I didn't realize is that my dad had been drinking throughout the day. And when he was coming home, he was just putting a topper on it, right, topping off. Um, I thought he had just taken a little bit. To me, it looked like he just drank a little bit and got that loaded. Um, one of my first memories with my dad was uh, waking up in the middle of the night to my mom crying and screaming and my dad uh, going by my doorway with my mom by the end of her hair uh, like a caveman dragging her down into the bedroom and throwing her around and beating her and telling her because she made a mess in the bathroom. Um, 
and just was just berating her up one side and the other. And uh, and I didn't know what to think about that. You know, I was five years old. I just sat there clenched. And um, the next thing I know, I woke up in the morning. I was still tense. And I remember going out in the kitchen. And there's my dad with his briefcase, his three-piece suit. He was getting ready to go to court that day. Uh, normal day. Mom had eggs and bacon and pancakes going. And uh, and my mom, you know, my dad was like, all right, see you later, honey. Okay, have a good day at work, you know, honey. And a little kiss and goodbye. Like, nothing happened. Like, nothing happened. And I'm just thinking... Did we not just have, like, wild caveman fighting crazy stuff last night? You know, like, I'm pretty sure I was there, you know. And, uh, but I'm five years old. I don't know. So I'm just sitting there. I'm just, you know, in shock, you know, eating like, okay, this is, I guess this is what we do with life. If something like that happens, we just shove it away. We just, it doesn't happen. If we don't think about it, it never happened. And so I learned these tools early on. We just shove it down. We just bottle it up. We bottle it up. And the problem with that is that if you are, even if as a kid it doesn't matter, it's not easy to, it's not hard to see that keeping those kind of huge emotional traumatic events just bottled up inside eventually just gets tighter, tighter. At some point it's going to blow. And my brothers, there was a lot of violence there. My brothers, uh, starting when I was about four, uh, used to sit downstairs and they'd, they'd throw punches at me and teach me how to fight and they'd say, always hit them twice and twice as hard. And they, they trained me, right? Like basically the, the training was, Try to stop us from kicking your butt. Uh, if you're successful, you're getting better. Uh, if not, well, you'll be crying. So, uh, you know, that's pretty much how training went, you know. And, uh, and so when I'd walk home from school, my brothers would say, see that kid up there? Go punch him in the face. And I'd be like, what? You know, like, punch him in the face, we're going to punch you. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want to punch him in the face. Like, punch him. Like, okay, so I'd go up, and I remember, I remember going up to this kid, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. He's like, why? Like, we're this. You know, and I punch him in the face, and... And he's crying, and I'm crying, and I feel terrible, and I run around the other street. He goes up, and I, I'm hiding in the bushes, and there he is. And my mom's out gardening flowers. You know, it's a beautiful day. And are you? My mom's, oh, are you okay? And this little boy is, are you Brenda Daly's mother? And yes, he punched me. And he looks over, and there I am in the bushes, kind of sneaking around. I'm not very good at it. He's like, you know, I've never been good at hiding. And, uh, you know, Brennan, get out of here and, you know, whoop my butt, you know, maybe apologize and all that. And uh, that's kind of how I grew up, you know, with my brothers. There was a lot of violence. And uh, we used to, I mean, it was not abnormal to, to run around the house. And, and I was number four out of five, so they were bigger than me. So I'd grab a fire poker, you know, and I'd just start swinging it at them, you know, anything to keep, keep them away. And I, I started grabbing butcher knives. And this one time, my brother Brian started to run for me because I grabbed a butcher knife. And I, when we did that, I wasn't joking around. It wasn't just like dramatic, like, ooh, butcher knife. It was like, I'm going to kill you, you know, and me meaning it. And I remember he went around the couch, and I hucked that thing, and it went n butt over tip, butt after tip. And it just, just when he rounded the couch, it went right behind his head, just poof, hit the wall. And uh, if I had backed it out, it would have just stabbed him right in the head. I mean, it was one of those throws, like, I couldn't have done it a million times. I could throw it a million times and wouldn't have done that. That time, it was perfect. And it landed. In that minute, I was so scared. I just remember when I let go, I thought, all I could think of was like, oh my God, that's a perfect shot. You know? And uh, it was. It was perfect. You know? And, uh, and he rounds the couch. And in that moment, you hear it. It goes, boom. And Brian looks, looks back at me really quick. It's a moment of opportunity. And I look at him. I'm like, that's right. I'll kill you. You know? <laughs> I was scared to death. But seeing my family, you capitalize on anything like that to put security in front of you. That kept me safe. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, my tools for living were this actually was not a bad thing. These things were things that allowed me to feel safe and protected. Because if, if people thought I was crazy and psychotic, 
They wouldn't come near me. And if they didn't come near me, you can't hurt me. And I'm safe. I have a natural instinct in my human nature that says I need to be safe. I need to find security. It's just completely twisted. And it's warped. And it's just, it won't bring me any, it won't bring me any unity with you. It will bring me disunity with you. And when I'm in disunity with you, I'm not in unity with God. And when I'm not in unity with God, I'm dying on my own. Even when I'm surrounded by a thousand people in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm dying. I'm unbelievably lonely, but you wouldn't know it. You would not know it. And uh, the first time I ever drank, the first time I got it done, um, I stole a bottle of McNaughton whiskey from my friend's, uh, my friend's mom's pantry. She came home in the house and took this bottle and put it up in the cupboard like she always does when she comes home from the liquor store. And I remember, I don't know why, but this thought just pops in my head. Mike had to go back to his bedroom. She had to go do something else. And I was alone looking at this bottle. And in my head, it just said, you should take that and go hide it. And my head said, yes, that's a good idea. And I said, okay. <laughs> it's one of many ideas that happened that I shouldn't have listened to, right? You know, what started there, you know? And so what I did is I remember grabbed it, I shoved it in on my pants, and I ran out the door. I don't know why, they weren't around, but I shoved it on my pants. Anyways, and uh, that's what my head said to do. And I ran out there and I put it in the bushes, and then I ran back. And I remember running back, sprinting back, and sitting down in the kitchen. And she came out, and it was just in time, because just about 10 seconds later she comes out. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, because <laughs> I'm dying, so I just sprinted and sprinted back. And, and I was in good shape. And, uh, you know, and she, she said, uh, she was looking around, she grabbed her glass, she's, didn't I just, did you see me put away the grocery? Yeah. Did you see a bottle there? I'm like, no. <laughs> and then we, she kept looking, and then, of course, like we always do, I tried to help her find it. <laughs> yeah, right? We never did find that bottle. <laughs> Strange to say, we never looked in my pants or the bushes. So, you know. But anyway, so, you know, <laughs> that would have been a good place to look. Anyway, so... Never occurred to her. Uh, so anyway, so Mike gets trouble. She thinks he just stole it. She's blaming him, yelling at him. I know it was there. She had the receipt and everything. Because it's a separate receipt from the stores. Prior to recently, we always had separate liquor stores. They were separate. Now they're in our grocery stores. Back then they were separate. So she had her own receipt for it. So she, look. And I'm like, I don't know. And so I was told to leave. So I left. And a couple weeks later, we're sitting out at my friend's house, Joel, in the summer. And... Uh, you know, they said, do you got any alcohol? I said, yeah, you know, actually, I got a bottle. So I ran and got it, and I brought it up there, and Mike was there, actually. That was the oh. kid's place where I stole the bottle from. And Mike was there, and I remember putting it out on the table, and he goes, you, you, it was you. And I'm like, hey, sorry, man. <laughs> that's, our, that's our early form of amends, right? Like, amends when you're drinking looks like this. Oh, sorry, bro. Uh, you know, and whatever. And, uh, you know, and he was mad for, like, a, a second. He's like, whatever, let's drink, you know? And, uh... So I grabbed these, these glasses because I remember my dad had the, had, the, had the routine, right? He had the ritual, the glasses. And I told him, we need, we need a shot glass. We need, I know we need that. I didn't know anything about drinking. I knew we need a shot glass, but that's about it. And we didn't have shot glasses. I, I ended up with this thing. There's these restaurants around us called Old Spaghetti Factory. They're not very good. But they're, anyways, they're these tall uh, glasses, skinny ones. And I just started pouring them. One, two, three, four, just downing them, downing them, downing them. And I'm... I'm not, I'm just holding this gasoline basically down on my belly. I'm just holding it down. And uh, I remember I drank about, I don't know, 18 of those or whatever it was. But I basically drank in a rapid succession three-fourths of that bottle of whiskey. And I'm sitting there. And I'm pissed because my dad used to take some drinks and I'd see him get something right away. Not knowing he'd been drinking all day long, right? And so I said, this stuff doesn't work. I must have got the wrong stuff. 
you know. And uh, but I'm pissed. I'm like, this stuff doesn't work. I can't believe I just I just put myself through tasting that junk, holding it in my belly, trying not to throw up, and nothing even. I didn't get any benefit, you know. And uh, I remember st- stepping up, and it was this one step up to the next deck towards the door, and it was just like in that three seconds, it was like. And I remember struggling to get these words out. Something happening now. <laughs> and I felt like, you know, the best way I can describe it is when that alcohol goes down to your belly, goes to the base of your spine, slowly comes up your spine, all the way up the back of your neck, top of your head, you feel your scalp tingling and whoosh, combs your hair back. And you're like, woo! You know, it's like you feel alive. You know, and I remember for the first time in my life, you know what I felt like? I actually felt like at peace. I felt at ease. Alcohol was a solution to how I was feeling. I was so tense and so wrapped up like this. It was like a cork just had let loose. It was like, oh, you know, I could breathe for a minute. I felt so good. And then after about a minute, maybe less than that, I black out. I don't remember hardly anything. I remember I was outside crying, apparently. I don't remember this, but I guess I was sobbing. <laughs> I wish I was like, oh, I was the awesomest drunk ever. I was so cool, you know, but I was crying on the doorstep of this house because I couldn't tie my shoes. Um, <laughs> right? I'm just like, I can't tie my shoes. It, I thought it was like 10 minutes. Apparently, I was crying for an hour. And the sister, the older sister that lived there, the boyfriend was the one that threw me out. He was annoyed with me. He's like, get this idiot out of here. He, threw, he literally picked me up and threw me out, thinking I would just wander off in the darkness and go away. I did not move. I couldn't move. I couldn't go anywhere. I was just rolling around. <laughs> you know, I can't do my dude. You know, and uh, God. So I'm walking around, and uh, they, they have this bright idea. Oh, let's take her to Heather's dad's house. He's an alcoholic. He'll know what to do. This makes sense to 13-year-olds. Okay. So they're taking me along, they're trying to help me, and, uh, and my friend Mike, who was still there with me, helping me, he was helping me, and I was falling down so much, I kept hitting my head, there was parked cars, I was running into parked cars, and I was like, I just couldn't, I could take a few steps and whack, and they were trying to help me, and I'd be good for a while, and then I'd just, I'd just fall down, and they'd be like, oh man, oh, I was getting hurt, you know, and Mike went in the garage, and he came running back, he stole a motorcycle helmet from somebody's garage. <laughs> Smart guy, and... Uh, he put this, he couldn't be picky about sizes of helmets, so he had an extra large helmet, and, uh, and I'm 13, you know, not much shorter than now, what am I saying? Anyway, so uh, he puts this helmet on, and it's like almost off to my shoulders, you know, over on, it's like, you know, but, uh, but he puts this thing on, and, and uh, you know, when I was a kid, they had these little toys, Weeble Waddles, right, these little top heavy things, you could move them around, like, woo, woo, a lot of fun, well, I became a weevil wobble because every time that thing went forward, I would dive forward. If it, if it slid, if the helmet slid to the right, just they'd get me up. I'd say, you know, and I was just I was head diving everywhere. But you know what? I wasn't getting hurt. I had a helmet, so they were like, "Nah, he's fine." They just stand me up, and I would go for a little while, and I crash, and they just and I got the max down so I can hear my own voice. I think it's the best thing on the planet. I don't know why that is for alcoholics. We get drunk and we hear our voice. We think it's like, oh my god, it's music. We need to share it with the world, you know? And uh, so I'm sitting there, I'm like, Luke, use the force. Everything Star... Men, everything Star Wars more drunk. I don't know why that is either. Loud in Star Wars. And uh, so they're like pulling up the mask, going, shh. I'm like, what? They're like, jeez. Put it back down. Because in my town, after 9 p.m., back when I was growing up at 9 p.m., everything's dead. There's nothing. 
Everything's dead. There's not a store open except for maybe a 24-hour convenience store. Nothing. And I'm screaming. You know, it's like 2 in the morning. And they finally get me over by Heather's dad's house. And right before we get into their, their little uh, street right there, they had another awakening. And they said, eh, this might not be such a good idea. You know, and uh, I can only imagine what that would have been like, you know. Hi, we know you're a town drunk. This is our friend. He's, our friend's wasted. What do we do? How would you like some kids coming to your door and your hi, you're drinking? Hey, we know you're an alcoholic. You're screwed up. What do we do with this guy? You know. And if you weren't aware of it, you would be then, wouldn't you? Um, there'd be no denying it at that point. Um, so they get me back and they do what I call the drunk dump. And the drunk dump goes like this: you get your friend or relative or whoever to the place they need to be. And you escape before seeing, being seen. You just dump them off where they need to be. And you're out of there. Because if you're associated with what's going on and what's happening, it's not going to go well. So my buddy Mike shoves me in the downstairs window of our house and just throws me in there. And I kind of stumble in and I'm so loud, he bails. He goes, later, boom, he's gone. And uh, my brother Brian comes out. And uh, I, had, I had this girl on my mind from my school. Uh, her name was Buffy. Literally, the whole thing. She was blonde, well-developed, beautiful, and I was thinking about her, apparently. And uh, Brian came out, my older brother, the one up for me, number, number three out of five. And I gave him a big, and I called him Buffy and tried to grope him and kiss him. <laughs> he did not appreciate that. Uh, my feet stayed planted. I bent all the way over the couch like Mary Lou Ren or, you know, like the, the gymnast, you know, just woo, and they pulled me back up. And my mom comes down, and she's like, you're drunk. Jim, Jim, yelling for my dad, your son's drunk. And my dad's like, which one? You know, and, and, swear to God, you know. And, uh, and I, I got up there, and I kind of recollect getting up there, and I kind of was in and out, you know, and I remember being up there, and I don't remember this. Apparently, I've had Buffy on my mind again. My dad got close, so I tried to grope and kiss him and called him Buffy and went, Buffy, you know. And uh, like I said, I wish I was a better drunk, but I was a slobbering, whiny, nasty, stupid drunk, you know, just annoying, you know. The kind you had to babysit. Those guys suck, you know. And, uh, you know, when I woke up in the morning, and the thing about that is that's my first time drinking ever. My first night. I, I woke up feeling great, you know that? I did. No hangover. I was like, woo, all right. I was, oh, oh, I'm in trouble. You know, and uh, I remember my dad having a talk with me and just said, oh, you got that out of your system. Well, don't do that again, okay? Or at least don't get caught. You know, and, uh, you know, it's like, okay, dad. You know, well, he's an attorney, right? So he's thinking, you know, legal stuff. And uh, no one went to jail that night. No one died. Nothing happened. Bad in my book. Right? I had some funny stuff happen. My friends told me about it. And you know what? Beyond that, though, I felt like I could breathe for a minute. And I, the, after that, it was basically just go time. By the time I was 14, I had stolen a, a keg from the battalion fire chief up the street. Um, and we turned it in. We, and so I had my own keg at 14. And... Uh, I'm an organizer. And uh, I had a guy that was 21, and uh, he would fill him, he would get all the profit, and I would drink for free. It was a great arrangement. I wouldn't call it a relationship, it was an arrangement, you know. And, uh, but I was married to alcohol from that point forward. Because all I could think about, my mind, all it thought about was, man, I can't wait till the weekend. I can't wait till the Friday night kager. Let's have one on Saturday too, Right? And what would happen is during the week, we would have the leftover alcohol, and we'd store it, because I was the one that owned it, I'd store it. And I'd go over there, and I'd, I'd drink stale beer, you know, because I could, I could pump the, uh, the keg there and tap it. 
And, uh, you know, at, at the time I was, uh, you know, see, it was about 13, yeah, about 14 still. By this time it progressed where I was drinking uh, within a very, very, very short period of time. I started drinking uh, during the day. Um, I started doing other things outside alcohol. Um, that kind of helped. Um, it was convenient because I could smoke it. Um, but it also helped me control my alcoholism where I could drink more. Uh, I found other things that allowed me to continue my drinking. Um, one of them, you know, one night I, I remember this is, uh, you know, I, I stole our car a lot, my family. We had a couple cars and one of them I stole a lot. And I remember pulling up to this house and, uh, I opened the trunk and we were, we'd steal liquor cabinets. We'd go in people's houses and, uh, while they slept. Well, it's better that way. <laughs> convenient. Uh, so they would be sleeping and we would go in and we would take the alcohol. We'd put it in there and then we'd drive away and then we'd have just, just get drunk. I'm not even licensed yet. You're not allowed to drive where I'm at until you're 16. Um, my first car wreck, I'm at 14 years old. Um, I was actually sober then. Well, I wasn't drinking. Uh, and I crashed the family van. My parents were on vacation. I wasn't even supposed to be in the house. And I remember uh, seeing the woman's face in slow motion just because she was like smiling, waving at us. <laughs> then she didn't went to this... You know, the scared look, and I just went, bam, I remember seeing the glass, and it was just like my heart, and I was like, oh my god, and my buddy behind me goes, punch it, and I just, whoa, and we took off, and, uh, and she was injured, not, not severely, but she was injured, her car was, was not drivable, I ditched the car, I wiped it down, I ran home in a path the cops don't know, um, through the woods, only a local person would really know that, and, uh, and I got home so fast. Um, they had police runners because they're trying to figure out if it was me. They, they had these two different routes and it would take too long to get to where we're at because we ran through and got to my buddy's house where I was supposed to be staying. And then I ran to my mom's house, uh, my parents before they got home the next day and I, I faked a robbery and, uh, and I covered up what I had done. And this is the type of stuff I'm doing at 14 years old. I'm already, I'm conniving, I'm, I'm thinking of things like this. I know how to cover my tracks. Um, you know, if they, if I don't get caught, it doesn't exist, right? If no one knows, it's okay. You know, and I'm burying this stuff down, I'm burying this stuff down. And I'm telling you, that woman's face, it haunted me for a long time. And I mean, a long time. And, uh, I, I won't, I'll never forget the day when it finally came out. And I just, I finally just, I, I rarely cried. But this, I remember when that happened, I just broke down. I was like, yeah, it was me. Cause I, somebody else had found out, somebody else had found out, somebody else. Cause you know, when you're 14, you're telling people. You know, and eventually it gets back, you know, it's like no one's good with secrets. Um, so it got back and my family confronted me and, uh, you know, that was done. And I remember sitting down with my dad at his law office and uh, I remember him calling the police chief. Well, actually it's the, it was the King County Sheriff because where it happened was in the county, wasn't in the city. So uh, my dad was best friends with the police chief. He was best friends with the mayor. I grew up sitting on judges' laps in Seattle in Supreme Court stuff uh, for the local area. Um, and so he knew lots of people. And so my dad called him up and said, hey, you know, whatever Bill, whatever his name was, this is Jim Daly, blah, blah, blah. They, were, they knew each other. And he told him what happened. And you know what? Um, I wasn't in AA yet. I wasn't in amends or anything like that. But he told him what was going on and that he figured out what had happened. And uh, you know what? I had no consequences because they'd already closed the file. They'd already paid the lady. The insurance had already paid. She was already done. And it would have caused him more problems and paperwork than was necessary. And he just said, tell your kid he's the luckiest 14-year-old in all King County. And he hung up. And that was it. That was the end of it. At least I thought. Um, funny how sponsorship changes some things. Um, I did not like that stuff. But anyways, we'll get to that. So, um, 
you know, that's that's all by the time I'm, you know, I'm, I haven't even gone to my first treatment center. You know, this stuff's happening, you know. And uh, my brother Brian goes to treatment one day. My parents were totally unaware. He went to him and said, look, I got a real drinking problem. I can't quit. He had his friend with him. And that's a lot for a kid to come to them with no, he wasn't in trouble, nothing. He just came to him and said, look, I got a real drinking problem. I also got problems with cocaine and some other things. He just started, he just came clean with everything. He just started listing everything he'd done. And my mom's just sitting there just sobbing. And she's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You know, and uh, so he goes to treatment. And uh, I remember my parents went away for uh, a family weekend, they call it. And a family weekend is where you're, they go away and they learn about the disease of alcoholism. And my mom went away, my mom. And by the time that weekend was done, my mom came home and she was a different person. And my mom was on a mission. And when mom gets on a mission, it's not always the best thing. Because mom was yelling at me going, I know what you're doing. I know. You're. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, hi, welcome home. You know, and, uh, you know, I know you're not swimming at the pool every day. That's not why your eyes are red. And she's, you know, like just berating me about all this stuff. And I'm like, uh oh, you know, jig is up, you know. And because uh, at that point, she just saw what she wanted to see, you know. And that's just how we were, right? Let's just look at the perfect family, you know. And uh, at that point, it's like a bomb went off in my family. You couldn't deny, where's Brian? I mean, oh, he's taking some time off. I wasn't going to work, you know, he was, he was young, you know. And uh, so my brother Brian went to treatment. He went to this thing called Wilderness Survival. He comes home. And I remember my brother Brian walking in. And my brother Brian had this look in his eyes I had never seen in my life. And I can't explain it. It actually freaked me out a little bit. For the first time ever, my brother looked at me and smiled and said, Hey, Brendan, it's good to see you. <laughs> I, I mean... I looked at him and I just, I literally took a step back and he, he laughed. He said, it's okay, man. I'm not going to hit you. And I was just looked and I was like, are you okay? He goes, man, yeah, never better. It's really good to see you. I love you. And I was like, whoa, whoa, don't go to treatment, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, and I gave him a big hug, you know, and I was like, but it really freaked me out. I mean, I, it really did, you know, and because uh, we didn't do that. It was, it was violence. We communicated by violence, silence. And some other things, you know, and, uh, you know, in my house, it was like the pecking order in this ladder, you know, it was like older brother come home, my dad come home, yelled somebody, bam, he'd hit somebody a lesser power, bam, hit somebody a lesser power, bam, all the way down to me, I'd hit my little brother, Kevin, beat on him, and then we'd find Kevin sitting there grabbing the dog's hair going, <laughs> swear to God, we'd hear the dog, like, what are you doing? He'd be like, <laughs> poor, poor freckles, <laughs> Brittany's been, Freckles committed suicide. That's a true story. My dog had finally had enough. She laid behind my mom's car and let her run her over. Swear to God. No, don't worry. I'm over it. Uh, I dug the grave. I buried her. <laughs> my dog committed suicide. I mean, that's pretty bad. <laughs> Screw you, humans. I'm out of here. You know? And uh, God, poor Freckles. Oh, I love that dog. She was such a good dog. Uh... She took a lot of beatings. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's really not funny, but it's terribly funny. I'm sorry. Oh, I get to see my little brother. Oh, God. The red-headed psychopath, you know? And, uh, oh, God. Anyways, so, uh, oh, man. So, uh, you know, he, he goes to treatment, and I don't, I don't know how to deal with this kind of stuff. And I, my reaction to that, it was the most bizarre thing. I went to treat. I went, and I just felt like, it's like I couldn't, I didn't have any alcohol that day and I couldn't, I couldn't put the lid on it and I was just going to explode. And, 
And what happened was, like I was saying in school, like people stayed away from me because I was a little guy, but I was a little scrapper, and I'm not, not, not a big guy, you know, but I'm just saying, like, I was crazy. Most of my fights were one punch, just psychopath fights, you know, they're just like, bam, knock them out, later, you know, and that was it, you know, and this one guy came up to me after this, and said, and he started starting some stuff with me, I said, not a good day, dude, not a good day, he punched me in the face, and I hit him, and I broke his jaw, and he dropped, and uh, it took two teachers, um, I blacked out, I used to black out in fights. I don't understand what that is. They, well, they diagnosed me later. Don't worry, I'm safe now. Uh, but they said I was manic depressive, bipolar, with disassociated of whatever, right? I was on my way to a good case of sociopath, you know, uh, psychopathic behavior. But uh, um, it took two teachers to tackle me and take me down. And, uh, and I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why my reaction to my brother going to treatment or any of that stuff and what was going on in my house. And they suspended me for one day because they figured out what was going on at my house and everything was in turmoil. And uh, they let me come back. Um, another guy... Uh, Another guy, I, we'll get into the men's stuff later, but, um, you know, I hit him and, and knocked his teeth out, and, and uh, it was $3,653 in damage. I remember that because my dad let me know. Um, emergency dental stuff, and, uh, you know, but that's kind of how my life was going, and, and, and uh, I got busted one day, one more time. And this time, it was that one that I just explained to you where I had that, that, uh, that amount. What they did is they created this law where if it was over a certain threshold... Um, Dollar-wise, usually if you don't hit them in the face and you just hit them in the body and they had to, that much medical bills, that meant they were in the hospital for a little while back then. Um, it wasn't really designed for this one-punch fight thing, but because of the damage, it put it at this Class A felony they were trying to charge me with. I would have got a lesser charge if I pointed a gun at him and said I was going to kill him, to put it in context for you, right? Um, and so I was looking at mandatory six months lockup uh, at the facility, and... Uh, my school took the time, the teachers took the effort, and uh, they actually, a ton of kids during fifth grade one day, wrote letters on my behalf to the judge. Crazy, you know, and uh, they said, please don't lock him up. We know what's going on, you know, and they wrote all these letters, said, look, he's a good kid, he's just, he's screwed up, and they kind of explained some things to him, and, uh, and it was, I never expected that, you know, I didn't expect anything. And uh, I remember going in there, and he, he gave me the six months, suspended it, and, uh, and I had gone, my dad said, you should go to treatment. You know, count it as time served. And so I did. I went to my very first treatment center. You know, and I'd already gone to outpatient with my brother and hung out with him. And, uh, but my only impact, uh, my only introduction to AA at that point was just kind of going to some meetings. My first AA meeting ever was like eight guys in this little church in Redmond up in the upstairs. And they all talked about stuff, you know, like this, grand, I mean, crazy stuff that I hadn't even done yet. And so I thought, well, I'm not as old as them. They've done some crazy stuff. They've had wives, plural, and divorced. I've never even been married yet. You know, like, these guys are way out there, you know. And, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm 14, 15 years old. This isn't going to work. I, I'm not one of these guys. I'm not one of these guys. I got some problems. But these aren't, this isn't my people, you know. And uh, so I go to treatment at Lakeside Milam Recovery Center. Part of that treatment is wilderness survival. So I go out there for 21 days, and wilderness survival is basically, I'm the only voluntary, uh, voluntary one. Um, everyone else is from jails, or you could sign your kids. Literally, if your kids were bad, you could sign, this is crazy back then, you could sign ownership, basically, custody of your kids over for this short-term period. It was created by a lawyer. And uh, so they'd come and get you in the middle of the night. You'd wake up to these two big guys. And they, no joke, man, they would grab you and they'd put you in handcuffs. They'd say, you're coming with us. We're like, Mom, Dad, you know, and they, you know, like, bye, son, we love you, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, bye, Jimmy, come back good, you know, and uh, God, that wasn't going to happen, you know, but I, I was in treatment, so I was voluntary, and I remember getting off the plane going, 
they grabbed me by either arm when I got off the plane, you know, because when they, they put you on the plane, take the handcuffs off, back then they could walk you all the way in. And then they, you didn't even know where you were going, you know. I knew because I was volunteer, but these guys didn't even know where they're going. Like, where am I going? These guys are coming from L.A., from Louisiana, all these crazy places, and they didn't even know. They're going to Bliss, Idaho. And if you don't know where Bliss, Idaho, there's like nothing. And there's like, you're flying in the middle of nowhere. And there's sagebrush, desert, not a lot going on. And uh, country roads, you know, and uh, they didn't even know where Idaho was, I don't think, you know. So we get there and I get grabbed off the plane. I'm like, I'm voluntary, I'm voluntary. Sure you are, you know. And uh, <laughs> literally, there's, they take me in this white van. We go out there. We strip down. It's jail, basically. So we strip down. We have to do the whole, you know, hair, cough, the whole thing. And then they give us these clothes to wear for 21 days. And uh, we hike sun up to sundown every day. Sun up to sundown. And every night I dig a shallow grave. And every night I put rocks in there. And I start my fire with bow drill friction. And I build a little fire. And I spread the coals. And I bury the dirt so I can survive. Because if I didn't do that, I'd freeze to death. Because in the day it was okay. But at night it got really cold. It was high plains desert. And uh, we were starving out there. We got little rations like a cup of lentils, rice, uh, flour, oatmeal, powdered milk, six bouillon cubes, and some raisins, right? Uh, for a week. There's a week for you. And uh, so we'd make things like ash cakes, flour, a little bit of water, make it doughy, throw some raisins, mmm, you know? And uh, that was like, we would trade with that stuff. That was like, gold. raisins were like, were like gold. And uh, we would save up, you know, and uh, be the envy of the place, you know? And uh, crazy, it was like Lord of the Flies, you know? And uh, yeah, we were crazy. And, uh, but yeah, I got some, I went there, I learned to trap things. So uh, it's all natural material. So cliff, rose cliff bark, you know, wind it up, make some thread. I took a rock some sticks and, and put it in there and twined it around anyways with a little raisin and a mouse came along and you know you get him and uh so you eat, you eat the mouse and then you cut him you take his fur off and uh took his i just roasted on my stick and it tastes like chicken the laugh taste the liver just in case you're wondering um i don't suggest doing it in the city but in the desert they're very very clean they're one of the cleanest animals i'm trying to convince you of eating mice i know but <coughs> i don't want to be alone uh <laughs> Eat mice with me, please. Anyways, we have we'll have mice tasting after this. It's all right. It's an American tradition. Please, I insist. No. Uh, even there, they're looking at me going. So anyways, so we get this medicine pouch and I had a rattlesnake vertebrae, you know, and I put this thing in there. And I don't know these in Native American culture where I'm, where I'm from. You don't um, you don't tell people what's in there. It's supposed to be like this thing, like from the spiritual world kind of thing. You put stuff in there and. You don't share what that is. I didn't know that. I'm coming back, yeah, it's a mouse pouch. You a mouse in the wilderness. Well, I'm telling everybody, you know, right? And, uh, and I come back from that thing, you know, and I've been in the desert for 21 days, and I found God, you know. And uh, I'm coming back to meetings, and, and, uh, and I'm going, yeah. You know, I'm Mr. Spiritual now because I went to the desert. And uh, I got a mouse pouch. It's my little spirit animal, you know. And uh, they start calling on me in meetings, and I, I got a nickname now because they start calling me, hey, let's hear from Rat Boy. Like, oh, rap boy, looking for rap boy, you know, and looking around, looking for some hard, hard dude, you know, rap boy, you know, so we'd, who'd be called that, you know, I'm like, I'm Brandon, I'm an alcoholic, you know, I'm 15, you know, and, uh, but I'm talking like this, you know, because spiritual people, I'm trying to emanate spirituality, because I haven't had a real spiritual experience, but now I'm supposed to talk like this is spiritual, so I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm Brendan, I'm an alcoholic, and, uh, Thanks for calling on me. I'm just so grateful. And, uh, I went to uh, Wilderness Survival. I ate a mouse. That's what's in my mouse pouch seat. And, uh, I had a 
I had a real spiritual awakening. Um, it wasn't from lack of food. It wasn't, I didn't eat peyote, but I just, it was just me and God in the desert. Jesus did it for 40 days. I did it in 21. You know, I mean, it was like this, just this, it was total BS. It was spiritual make-believe. And I wasn't fooling anybody. I was, I was fooling some of them. And some of them come up to me like, oh, I never thought I'd learn anything from a young kid. Oh, you guys are usually full of crap, you know? But man, you like really touched me, dude. Like, you're like amazing. Thanks, man. Keep coming back. <laughs> right. What? Oh, God, man. One day at a time, brother. <laughs> I've now become the guru of Hilltop Fellowship Hall. And this hall was nothing to be proud of if you were running that thing. And it was a place for us to go. It was a place where things were louder in the meetings than they were in my head. Because this head was so loud with crap going on. I could not shut it up. And I would go to this fellowship hall, and it was because there was so much insanity there. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. I mean, people were loud. And we would sit there and smoke. It was like, you know, I mean, it was like, everyone was just like, you know, tweaking out, you know, because they were just like, I would smoke a Marlboro Red, and I'd like sit there and be like, <laughs> we'd flick it so much, our chair would go, bing! You know, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? That's the laughter of identification right there. Those two, the blonde, the plaid, you with the gray sweater. Look, look, look. No, Anyways, so yeah, but I would, I'd just sit there and I would just be freaking out, you know? And uh, those are the, like, the fun days where it's like, okay, this, this middle and this side is smoking. This is non-smoking over here, you know? And, uh, and it was like, I mean, it was just stupid, you know? And we'd sit there and go, just to be funny, just to screw with you guys, you know? And, uh, and, uh, and back in those days, that's kind of how things were. And so I was going to all these meetings. And I was going, meetings, meetings, meetings. We're going to banquets and conventions. We were doing so much fun stuff, you know, right? But here's the problem is that I'm doing all these things, but I don't have a sponsor. I'm not working the steps. I'm not doing anything the AA literature tells me to do. I'm just going to meetings. And I'm living at these fellowship halls. I'm just living there. I'm, I, this one place we used to go to, uh, Bellevue Olano Club, um, they serve food. So I'd go there and I would eat, you know, lunch, dinner. Um, and I'd go there after school and I just, I lived there at these places. The thing it did is it, it kept me safe and protected physically, right? Our circle and triangle, right? Right? Equilateral triangle. It wasn't by any mistake that they picked this symbol. The circle is an ancient symbol which wards against evil spirit. Equilateral triangle within there, all three sides of these three legacies are equally important. Body, mind, spirit. Right? Unity, recovery, service. Body, mind, spirit. I got a three-part disease. And I got a three-part solution. That's not by mistake. That's by design. I was sitting there doing the body, the unity part, right? Just living in meetings. That's all I was doing. Living in AA. As long as I live there, I'm okay. But think of it like this, like a three-legged bar stool. If I'm on one leg on a bar stool, how long can I balance? Not very long. If I got two, I'm missing one still. If I got two, a little bit better. But eventually I'm going to fall down. I got three, I'm solid. If I'm working all three, I'm safe and protected in that circle. That's why they chose that symbol. I'm safe and protected. It's just like the herd used to look in nature, right? The animals, when the, when the prey are out there, right? And they're, they're, they're getting hunted, right? The ones that survive are not the ones on the outside, they're trying to fight to get in the middle. And if the ones in the middle are the ones that live. I got in the middle of AA. 
but I didn't get in the middle of the spiritual solution that AA talked about. I just hung out. In fact, there was meetings at this hall where we'd have somebody stand up and talk about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, our actual textbook. They would share some experience with it and say, hey, you know what? I just want you to know I went to this workshop and I went through the steps and I read this thing and he'd read us the part and he'd, he'd, he was just talking about him. He wasn't saying anything about me, not saying you're not doing it, I am, but he just said he was. But we were so offended because we were so uncomfortable because of where we were at. We used to literally tell these people to get the hell out. And I'm not joking. This one guy, I remember, I'll never forget it. Devin stood up and started doing it. We're like, oh yeah, why don't you come back when you can get real? Because people were getting real where people talked about the struggle. Yeah, man. But I'm sober, you know? You know? My car broke down and blah, blah, blah. This train of horrible circumstances, you know? And I lost it. I admitted I beat my car. I blew up my window with my, you know, with my tire iron. Ha, ha, ha. But, you know, whatever. F it. You know, and, but hey, at least I'm sober. You know? And you just be like, yeah, dude. You and me, man. Rap boy. Good night. You know, and uh, it's crazy, you know. And this guy would be like, he'd sit down gently and Devin would be like, okay. And sometimes he'd get so crazy he would leave because we would get literally violent reactions towards us. And I called them happy, shiny happy people, right? Before REM wrote that. I should get royalties, by the way. But anyway, that's another story. So anyways, we call them shiny happy people, right? And he's like, oh, shiny happy people, Mr. Spiritual. You know, ooh, Mr. Spiritual. Oh, yeah, you're so much better than us. Oh, yeah, big book, ooh, steps. Look at you. I'm glad it's going so well for you while we're over here dying, you know? And that's the way it was. Because if, if I'm dying inside, if I'm dying on the side, I'm saying an Alcoholics Anonymous. And you're sitting over there and how great it is for you. And man, I got this. I just God just blesses my life. I have a job. I have a car, a brand new car. I got a loan. I couldn't believe it. I got a house. I got this big house on the lake. It's amazing. Just the steps are coming true for me. And I'm just like going. Click, 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 click. One more. One more. One more. I'm going to launch over them and freedom. You know, and uh, you know, that's just the way I was, you know, and. These guys would drive me crazy. So one day, what happens? I'm going to my second treatment center. My second round of insanity, right? Check-in. And this time, um, I have nothing. I have no insurance, no nothing. They have one bed that the state pays for at this treatment center. One bed, that's it. Here, I understand you guys get treatment paid for or whatever. Where I'm from, you don't. No insurance, tough. You know, got nothing, tough. We got people dying all the time. They have one bed. And my mom calls and she begs. She begs the treatment director. Says, my, my son's in real trouble. He's 18 years old. He's got advanced alcoholism. L late stage. They'd already told me, like the last treatment center, I was 15. He, the doctor, remember on intake, he goes, you feel this right here? And I'm like, ah, yeah. Like, you know, don't poke there. You know, kind of deal. And uh, my liver was enlarged a little bit. I'm 15. You know, it's, it's irritated. It's inflamed. You know, and then I go to this next one, I'm 18, you know, and I'm like, they had one bed, but I got in. He talked to my mom, he talked to me, and he said, I'm going to make an exception if you be here by morning. And it's on the other side of the mountains, we had to drive up over, through some snow, over uh, to the other side, stayed the night in a hotel. Uh, that night I went out, actually, by the way, and I went around town. It was in an area I'd never even been. It was like in the middle of nowhere again also. And I wanted my, I just want to drive the car around for a little bit. I'm just, I just need to get out of the hotel room. I can't believe she bought that one. I mean, how does... Whatever, Mom. Anyways, so 
She gave me the keys. I couldn't believe it. So I'm driving around like, uh, does it look like he's druggy, alcoholic? No. I'm looking for, I'm looking for my people. Where are my people? I don't know anyone. I'm in the middle of nowhere, and there's nothing going on. There's, some, you know, and uh, I'm like, I couldn't figure out who was, there was nobody there. I asked a couple, hey, you got. This kind of looked at me, you know, and uh, a couple guys didn't speak English. I'm like, ah, oh, never mind. And I went back to the hotel, and and, uh, and I sat down. And I'm like, oh yeah, I was fine. And I went in treatment the next day, and. Uh, I can't explain that. I also can't explain that one of the first nights I was there, a guy invited me in his room, and he brought a, he was a, he was a major drug dealer in the United States, and he had a whole bunch of stuff his drug runners had brought in there. I could add anything. I had alcohol, they had cocaine, they had pot, whatever he had hidden in his room, they had run it up there. And they invited me in. They're little. He's new, so he's you know he's on the edge probably. And I didn't do anything that night. I just told him, you know what, I came here to get well. And uh, there was something I can't I can't explain it. You know, there's that time people call it moment of clarity, whatever. I was just done. I was just at the point where I just didn't care anymore. I just wanted to die. I really did. I can't stand the pain. I can't stand living in my own skin. If this is it, if this is life, you can have it. This sucks. I can't do it. And the next day, these guys all get busted and they leave and I get to stay because I didn't. I get out of there and I work, uh, work some step work in there. What I thought was step work. One through five in treatment, you know. Um, but in that version, it wasn't the AA, it was like these sheets, you know, like, are you selfish? Check. <laughs> are you self-seeking? Check. <laughs> and I didn't even really believe I was, I just knew I was, I know the game, right? If I don't check it, I'm not going to pass, right? Yep, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm these things. I don't know why, but I'm, I'm these things. And uh, I get out and I start going to meetings again, just going to meetings, just going to meetings. And I'm now in step six because I did one through five in treatment. I remember sitting and I tried AA and AA doesn't work, so I start going to NA. Actually, I tried CA in between that, but they use the same book, so I left. Um, <laughs> true, and I never did coke, so it was like, forget it. Um, so I went to NA because I really was some drug addict stuff there, and I was like, oh yeah, okay. And you know, I'd be like, ah, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. Like, alcohol is a drug, you know. And I'd be like, oh, sorry, you know. And uh, didn't mean to get so touchy, you know. And uh, so we're sitting there in the summer, and uh, there's this meeting. It's on the sixth step. And we're on the lawn, and uh, there's the same people with the same relapse sobriety. The longest person sober, yet again, is like nine months. There's no real solution going on. It's the same stuff I've heard a thousand times. And I'm just done. And I left. I said, you know, I'm just not feeling well. I'm going to go back to my, my house. And I lived about two blocks away. I just got up. I started walking down the street, and I walked up. My mom, she had this big hill. You go up in Redmond where we live. And so I'm walking up, hiking up this hill. And I remember I... I started talking out loud to God that I was angry at and didn't believe in. Uh, it's kind of hard, like they say, you can't be angry to God you don't believe in, right? doesn't really work. Uh, so I look back at the mountains. There's beautiful Olympic mountains there. I could see them from the, from the road. We're looking back at the mountains. And I'm looking around. I make sure no one of my neighbors aren't looking out. I mean, it would have been the weirdest thing they've seen me do. <laughs> but uh, they probably would have wondered. Um, <laughs> But I looked out there and I just said to God, you know, out to the sky and just said, you know, if you got something, you better send it quick. Because I've tried AA and it doesn't work. I've tried CA, it doesn't work. I've tried NA. I've gone to four different counselors and a psychotherapist. I've tried the drugs and not the drugs. I've tried everything I did. I did two, two treatment centers, you know, wilderness survival. I ate a mouse, whatever, none of that. And, uh, I don't know, what the hell. And, uh, we're willing to go to any lengths, right? It was the wrong lengths, but I'm willing to do whatever, and uh, I just told him, you know, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. 
I can't do this. And this means living. Sucking air, breathing. I can't live in my own skin. I can't stand to be who I am. And I remember turning around and I said, P.S. Uh, literally out, P.S. <laughs> uh, you know, I better do it soon because I can't stand, stand to see the pain in my mom's eyes. I can't stand to watch, her, watch me die. Uh, um, and I made a promise to God that if it wasn't soon, I was going to take as much alcohol and as much drugs as possible and end it. And I meant it. And, uh, and I walked up the rest of the way that hill. It's funny how these things happen. You say things like this and you think you're just talking to the sky. And two weeks later, more or less, sitting in my buddy's telling me about this guy's house he goes to once a week. And he takes us through the book. He makes it interesting, though. Because they used to give that in treatment said, if you want to go to sleep, read this book. True story. They give you L-tryptophan from Turkey to make you sleepy and then tell you to read the big book. And uh, so I, I was sitting there and I'm like, well, how does it make it interesting? And he goes... I don't know, dude, he reads it to us. I'm like, whatever. So I went and I showed up. And there we are, and I'm sitting on the carpet, and there's this guy, he's like almost seven feet tall. John, big loud John. And, uh, you know, he's looking at me, and these guys have already met a couple times. He's like, well, we're not too far in, we'll just start back at the beginning, okay, boys? And I'm like, okay, you know. There's all my buddies, and our girlfriends go upstairs, you know, and, uh, and uh, they're meeting with his uh, soon-to-be wife. So all the girls are going up there to meet with the, the woman sponsor. And I'm down there with John with all the guys, and the guy sponsor. And uh, he's like, so, why do you think you're an alcoholic? You know, and I'm like, you know, down here on the carpet. And I'm like, uh, and I start telling him crazy stories. I start telling him about the time that my buddy wouldn't give me what he was holding. I pulled out my dad's hunting shotgun and I pulled the trigger to shoot him, to kill him, so I could get what I wanted. My dad was a good hunting uh, owner and he didn't load the gun. And it went, just went click. I got pissed and threw it at him, pulled out. He's like, okay. And I told him about all the fights, all the crazy stuff, the insanity, all the stuff I was talking about, all the behaviors, behaviors, behaviors. And finally I get done, and John's like, huh, is that all of it? I'm like, well, yeah, pretty much shows you I'm I got a problem. He goes, well, I, believe me, I think you got some problems. That's evident. You know, um, and you've gotten in some trouble, but that's all drama. That's all drama related to your drinking. What I want to know, Brendan, is after each of these times you told me when you had a period of sobriety, why did you drink again? And he just sat there and looked at me and waited for my answer. And I gave the best answer I've ever given my entire life. I just said, I don't know. And he goes, right. Let's look what the book says. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's got me though. This guy has my attention. I just gave him the best answers I've had and I believe them to the fiber of my body why I was an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic because I say I am. I'm an alcoholic because these things happen. Obviously, I'm an alcoholic. But I couldn't explain why I took a drink after a period of sobriety. I didn't understand. Because I'd never read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous where it actually explains stuff in detail. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> it's the stupidest thing, you know? And that's uh, not just alcoholics. It's, you know what that is? It's just people who are filled with pride and ego. I got a huge ego and crappy self-esteem. Bad combination. I can't be wrong, but I'm too terrified to ask you for help. And so this guy starts telling me through the book. He takes that first page with a circle and triangle. Well, back then, we used to print it in the very beginning page. It says, this is the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And he underlined recovered. And he wrote down some, some definitions for that. And he started pointing out the word recovered. Because where I grew up in the meetings, it was like, we don't say recovered so people think they're cured. 
And yet the book talks about recovered over and over and over. And I was like, oh, I guess I've had this screwed up. I started learning that recovered doesn't mean cured. If I have surgery, I go into recovery, it's painful. Recovery sucks, right? You're healing. You just got cut open and stitched. Ouch, right? You get off that, you've gotten through recovery, and then you've recovered. At some point, you're done. You have scars. It's not that it didn't happen. It happened. It's still there. You can still get injured. doesn't mean you didn't get hurt, shot, whatever. But I'm recovered. So the same thing happens in my, in my, my sober life. He says, okay, here we go. So we looked at the three legacies. So you got these three problems. You got a, you got problems with the the physical, with the body. You have a you have disease here with the mind, right? Recovery, and you got, a, you got a problem over here in the spirit, right? In the service area, right? So body, mind, spirit, affecting me in three different ways. I got three part solution in Alcoholics Anonymous, and on that first page, he outlined basically in masterly detail. Here's where we're headed. He gave me a vision, which I didn't even understand. But what I did pick up on was that there was a message of hope. The doctor's opinion blew my mind. In the doctor's opinion, it, they used to actually have doctor's opinion as page one. In the very first edition, the very first printing, it was page one. Some people got together and said, ah, well, that's not an alcoholic, so we should have the alcoholic start on page one. We'll put that as Roman numerals. And so that's how it's been. Although there is a movement now, by the way, uh, where they're trying to change that back again. So you may see that at some point. Because without that, it says, he says, without this picture, without this explanation of the allergy, it's incomplete. I didn't realize I had an allergy. I couldn't understand why I couldn't just, you know, buck up. Why couldn't I just take my human nature, try harder? Isn't that what we're taught? You got a problem? You're not trying hard enough. You're not working smart enough, hard enough, whatever. You know, it, but I really thought that was the solution. I just, there's something I'm not doing. And so what I started to believe out of my failures is that I, I'm not alcoholic, I'm alcoholic and. I'm alcoholic and something undiagnosed. I don't know what, but I know it's not good. And so I start believing that I'm beyond alcoholism, that there's no hope for me. And what this guy did for the first time ever, because if I got jails, institutions, and death, or some type of spiritual answer, including Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't believe that that's worked for me, all I got left is jails, institution, and death. That's not a good place to be for an alcoholic. So it breaks my heart. I could have left AA at that point if I hadn't run into this guy. And I would have thought, I, I would have swore to you I tried AA. I mean, I went to thousands of meetings. Didn't I try? I attended meetings. And here's the crazy thing. I know there was a solution there at those meetings. The happy, shiny people, they were there. <laughs> Hate them, right? But they were there. But they were sharing a message of hope. They were sharing the story of Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't get to, well, actually I can't say that. I've seen some guys with 25 years and absolutely nothing I want. They're absolutely crazy. They're dry. But there are a lot of guys out there who have been long-term sobriety and they're not crazy. They did something. How did you get sober? And not only that, how are you happy about your sobriety? That's more important. Because I've been separated from alcohol, but I've never been happy in my life. The best moment of my life back then was I'd wake up, I'd reach over the table with my ashtray, my parents let me smoke in the house back then. We figured it was better than drinking, right? So I'd reach over and I'd smoke Marlboro Red and I'd light up. I'd be like, ah, that was the best part of my day. Smoke a second one in the shower, you know, deal and uh, go about my day, you know. And, uh, but this guy gave me a message of hope and that was, this is who I am. And he said, I don't want you to listen to my story because that's what I used to do. I try to listen to your drama, try to match it to mine. He said, for the first time, I want you to think about your story. Does it validate 
what's in this book. And there was a huge opening within me because I started looking at my experience, reading the doctor's opinion, going, oh, I have that mental obsession that this book is talking about later in this deal. I, this explains that allergy. Why, when I take a drink, I have little or no control over my life? None of it. I just, I'm off and running. I don't know where it's going to end. I don't know where it's going to end. And this guy, um, he starts taking me through the steps every week, page by page. We didn't skip anything. He even read me the freaking, you know, forwards to every dang edition. You know, and I'm just like, but you know what? He was an AA nerd and I loved it. He told me history. He told me about what happened. He told me about the miracle in Akron where, you know, Bill was there and he was going to drink. The business deal went bad. He was in danger. He was long-term sobriety and long-term sobriety back then. A miracle was six months. Six months, it was like, whoa. 30 days was like, wow. I mean, they didn't have AA, right? They had no treatment centers. They had, they didn't, they had, they had something called alcoholic insanity. My grandpa was committed for that for a little bit. We have pride in my family. Um, but anyways, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we did these things and, uh, you know, they had alcoholic insanity, but they didn't have, they didn't have a big book. They didn't have this stuff. What he had was something that someone had shown him from the Oxford groups and he put it into action. A little bit different. And what he got was doctor's opinion, that Dr. Silkworth description. When he gave that, that was the one thing that Bob never had. Bob had tried the spiritual solution, tried this stuff, but he could never do it. When he gave him Dr. Silkworth's description with some of the information from Carl Jung and all that, and it's like something clicked within him, this identification, the miracle of identification, right, that happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got what you got. I am you, and you are me. Until that understanding can happen, right, little or nothing, it says, can be accomplished. Little or nothing. Until I understand to my innermost self what it means to be alcoholic. And so with that definition, when he started giving me this stuff, and I went, my God, I have the allergy. I get it. It makes sense to me. If you said, you know, if you, if you replaced it with like Coca-Cola and said, oh, yeah, I stole from my mom. I stole from people's houses and garages and ripped them off so I could buy another case of Coca-Cola. I'd be like, God, you're an idiot. That's the stupidest thing. Oh, or somebody with an obsession with cheese. Yeah, man, the shark cheddar is just awesome. You know, it's like... But you know what I mean? It's like, it seems silly, right? It's just, that's ridiculous. We look at that, we laugh, we're like, God, what an idiot. Who would ever do that? How about for alcohol? It makes sense, right? That's what we look like to normal people. And I finally got it. I'm like, ah, I'm abnormal. That's what it says. Ab, yeah, I know I'm abnormal. But I mean, I mean abnormal drinking, right? Like I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. And my life is unmanageable. I don't have the power to live. It's an interesting part in there when it starts getting the spiritual solution, right? It's not the spiritual part, by the way. That drives me nuts. The whole point of alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous in this book, it says, right? Lack of power, that's our dilemma. Where and how are we to find this power by which we could live? L-I-V-E, live. But where and how are we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. It's not about saying something else. It's about, hey, dude, hate to tell you, if you got this, you can go jails, institutions, or death, or you can be a happy, shiny person. <laughs> it sucks, man, I'm telling you. 
it's really hard to, when I talk about that to just go, oh God, I am what I hated. I'm that guy. There's some dude out there right now who's me back then going, I, what is this? I can't say it. I'm gonna fly back to America, you know, and uh, full of himself. Shame, Mr. Spiritual. And I can put on a suit and look good. I know the real story. Dying inside like I am, you know. Sure thing, buddy. Take a shot. Uh, I challenge you. You know, I challenge you to, to try this thing. You know, if you haven't, and it doesn't mean just people that are brand new. People can be sitting around in Alcoholics Anonymous for years and never worked a step. And get to a point where the stuff they were doing isn't working anymore and wondering why they are not, why are they not, uh, feel like they're, they're like spinning their wheels. They're thinking about dying. They're thinking about drinking. They're just thinking about ending it. They haven't had that, that promise of what Alcoholics Anonymous says. You know, that new attitude and outlook towards life, towards people. How does that shift occur? And the most interesting thing in the world is this miracle book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And what a brilliant way to write. Because it doesn't tell you some of the things later on in the beginning. If it had started with the stuff in the beginning and said, hey, you're going to have to do this, I would have been like, Woo, peace. I'm out of here. But when you give me step one first and show me the hopelessness of Alcoholics Anonymous, or alcoholism, sorry, alcoholism, I have two choices, right? One is to go on to the bitter end or accept spiritual help. This we did because we wanted to and were willing to make the effort necessary. That's hard. But when you're dying of alcoholism and you're at that point where you're like, I have nothing left. I have nothing left to lose. Whatever. What do you want me to do? And one night I remember sitting in my basement and uh, my sponsor had gone through one of the things he did is he started in the beginning. He said, we're going to start from the beginning, but you need to start doing this every day. And we looked at 86, 87, 88, retiring at night every morning when you wake up in the morning meditation and look at that. He says, you need to start reading this every day and start practicing some things in there. And we went through it and he said, if you don't, you're never going to make it. You're never going to make it. And I thought, okay, well, I'll try this thing. And I remember going home and I remember laying in bed and he told me every night and I remember laying in bed and went, all right, I guess I'll do this thing. So I got up and I questioned everything. I questioned, because I was ready, so I questioned doing the whole, you know, dialing for God. You know, and uh, <laughs> I usually got the busy signal. I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, <laughs> these insert exact change. Harder, you know, and uh, anyways, so I'm like, am I okay with that? I'm like, eh, I don't know. And then I thought about, you know, putting your hands together. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm okay with this. So I put my hands together. I'm okay with that. And I remember thinking about getting into my knees and I went, you know, getting into my knees is, a, is an act of humility and trying to you know, not grovel before somebody, but just saying, you know, just recognizing that I'm, I'm really powerless here and I need some help. And so I saw it as a physical representation of where I was at. And I was coming humbly and just saying, I don't know. And I remember getting on my knees, looking out the sky. It was a daylight basement. There's my window and there's some clouds going by on the full moon. I remember just sitting there and I looked up the sky and I didn't know what to say. I was just like, for the longest time, I'm just sitting there going, um, because I'm not going to do my recited prayers that I learned my whole life. There's no heart behind it anymore. I needed to talk to God. I needed to start. Need to, it says a sentence in this book. It says, we honestly asked ourselves what these terms meant to us. Meaning about God, any definition, anything you have around God, the spiritual life, ask yourself what they honestly mean to you. And the reason I love that is because it separates 
me from all the other BS. I don't get to blame you and your definition of what you've tried to put on me. I don't get to blame anyone else. It's me and me alone. Me and God. I don't get to sit there and play victim anymore. And I sat there, I looked out at the sky and I went, Hey, I'm Brendan. <laughs> All right. And I got in bed and I was like, good night. I didn't know what to say. You know? And I, I laid in bed and I was like, just laughing. I was like that. I was like laughing going, oh my God, dude, I'm so stupid. And, uh, and you know what the funny thing is? The thought that occurred to me immediately wasn't like this, wasn't like this wash of wave of like spiritual happiness or tranquility. And, oh, and I never drank again. You know, it was like, what happened was I laid there and I just laughed at that the guys could see me now, they would totally clown on me. They would just be like, I am Brandon. You know, they'd totally make fun of me. I'm alone in my basement with no witnesses talking to the sky. And I felt so uncomfortable. I felt ridiculous and embarrassed. And this is the crazy thing. Think about that. When in juxtaposition to that, the opposite being that in the things I should feel bad about, should feel embarrassed about, should feel guilty about, I didn't feel anything, at least I thought. I'm backwards. I'm completely backwards on everything. I mean, no one can see me. And yet I feel, I feel so ashamed. And I'm talking to God alone. But here's the miracle. I started a conversation. I didn't, there was no magical thing that happened that night. But there was a magical thing that did happen. And that magical thing that happened is that I opened the door and said, God, please help me. In my own way. And it didn't matter how inadequate it was. I didn't have to light some specific candle or burn the right incense or put on the right weird music. You know, it's like all I had to do was just say, hey, God, I need to start a conversation with you here. It's Brendan. I feel like singing Adele right now. That's pretty funny. Anyway, so, uh, hello, can I'm a California, oh, sorry. Hello. I should start talking about the outside, right? Screaming out of the outside. Oh. Uh, actually, I got a drawer right here. Oh, you got that? Cool. And thanks for water, dude. I like him, too. Thank you. I appreciate that. I do. Um, you know, so there I am. I feel ridiculous and embarrassed, and I talked to God, and that's all I did. And then, uh, you know, I remember going to the third step. I remember going and say, I, it was actually, it was funny. When we went to the, the place, he said, we're going to go to this place. It's really cool. It's an old abandoned seminary. And I'm like, oh, all right. He said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay with that, man. And he told me where it was. It was the first treatment center I went to, Lakeside Mile, up on the hill. It was an old seminary. And the other half, though, we were never permitted to go in. It was where they had this other place. It actually used to be St. Mary's. It was still running. It was a church. They didn't want the crazy people going over there. Uh, or the nuns in call. Help. You know, and, uh, and you can tell who didn't belong, right? Like, you know, yeah. The guy with the slit in the back on the robe is running around again. Um, so, I, uh, you know, it's funny. I was just telling somebody about the... I think I, yeah, I was telling, we were just talking about that. I still have the robe from the medical psychiatric unit I was in. Nice paisley print. I look at it every once in a while in my closet. I'm like, ooh, there's a winner. But uh, I remember going to this third step prayer, and before we go in, and I'm praying to God. I'm like, oh, God, please let something happen. Please give me a sign. Because I was terrified. I've na- I now have an understanding of I know why I'm screwed. I know I'm doomed. I'm doomed. 
And my only hope and, and choice here is if something happens in this AA deal. If this doesn't work, I have nothing left apart from some divine intervention of just struck sober. And the chances are that I'm feeling are pretty unlikely. You know? And so I go into this place. I'm like, please God, please God, please God. And I'm walking up. And there's these old, huge wood pews. It's just beautiful marble. This thing's built a long time ago. Beautiful marble work going all the way up. There's this big altar. And there's I am. And I, we kneel down, cold marble. And I look up. And the entire ceiling from the back to the front, intermittently of these giant circle and triangles, the AA symbol. Show off. <laughs> you know, but that's what I'm thinking. I'm just going, wow. God, you know, it was like, it just hit me. Now that didn't have to happen, but man, I'm sure glad it did. I just looked at it and I was like, oh my God, there's circle and triangles. You know, and uh, I remember going home and uh, that was the second time through the, to the steps of my sponsor because I got into the third and fourth and I died. I didn't finish my first inventory, right? And I went back to him with the tail between my legs going, I can't finish my inventory. He's like, oh, lost power to do it. I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, let's go back in. I know you got number, step one. We're going to jump back in this one with step two. Okay, so we started going through and I went all the way up to three and that's where we were right then, three. And I go home and I remember I'd done my first uh, resentment inventory like I died in and I went back and I remember sitting down and saying this prayer. And pay attention here if you knew. Do not say this prayer. Whatever you do. Because I died in my first one, right? So I was afraid I dealt with all these things, these issues I had. And they were gone now. And so I couldn't remember stuff I was afraid of. So I was like, oh God, please give me enough resentments to have an inventory. Mm -hmm. It's like going to Homeland Security where I'm at and saying, hey, how would you feel if I put a bomb on the plane? <laughs> I'm just asking the question. I don't have a bomb. I'm just asking what would happen. Wait, you know, and it's like, you know, you're screwed. I won't do that. Maybe. But I said that prayer and I remember it's like my soul puked. I mean, just, we call it the spiritual anima. We're just kind of joking. It's kind of funny. But we're just like, it's like my soul just went, wow. And I, it's the funniest thing is we're so self-centered and self-absorbed. I couldn't remember this guy's name in first grade if you would, you'd ask me. I couldn't ever remember his name. And I remember sitting there writing this inventory and writing all these names, writing all these names, writing all these names. This page, I ran out of paper. I had to go back to the desk, get more paper, and write names and write names and write names, write names, write names, write names, write names. I'm like, ah, and it's going crazy. And I'm like, and I'm just going like a fear. I'm just like, oh yeah, that guy, that guy. And it's great because I'm like, I hate him, I hate him. It's like the hit list, right? You know, it's like, die, 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 die. Yes, double die. You know, and. Uh, and all of a sudden, I'm just like, I couldn't remember this guy's name. White hair. He, he was like my best friend in the summer. One day, he was just gone. I'd ask people over the years, do you remember that guy? Remember that guy? We'd be drinking at a party. Hey, you were with me in first grade. Do you remember that guy? They'd be like, what? No. I don't remember him. I'm like, ah, I could never remember his name, you know? And, and finally, I'm sitting there in my force. I'm like, Kelly. And I'm like, yes! <laughs> you abandoned me. I'll never forget you. Anyways. And uh, so we're sitting there, I'm writing this stuff, and I'm like, oh, and then John, I go meet with him the next, you know, like, in a few days, we sit down, and he's like, here's the second part, the inventory, this is who you hate, you put on the list, you put, like, limited to four per person now, you know, I'm like, okay, because he didn't want me to, like, get, you know, novel of stuff, you know, and, like, you know, we get to the point after four or five, right, so he's like, just, you know, so I start writing, you know, you know, mom, you know, like, dad, you know, I'm that dad, you know. Doesn't, you know, doesn't pay for my college even though he's loaded, you know. Dad, beat on mom when I'm married. Dad, beat on me, you know, like, dad, you know, doesn't love me, you know. Mom, she hates me, I hate her. 
die, you know, and all this stuff. And uh, once in a counseling session, my parents were there, and I told the counselor, you know, I was like, you know, uh, I looked at my mom, he's like, well, tell you know, the anger mom's like, I'm like, well, I'm never, you know, mom, I hate you, I'm never even going to your funeral, when you die, I'm going to dig you back up, take the gold out of your teeth and sell for drugs. You know, like, and my dad's like, ah, and he's like, ah, oh, he's expressing his feelings. That's counseling in America. He's just expressing his feelings. At least he's being open and sharing and being honest. It's like, oh my god. Dude, did you hear what I just said? Nothing, huh? Alright, this is going to be fun. I'll just keep going, you know? And uh, So, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm just all these stuff, and I'm writing these people that I couldn't even remember, and i got 264 different people, I'm writing all this stuff, i got this novel of people, I'm just like, hate. You know? And I, I remember, oh, this is so sad. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about that part. Anyways, we'll move on. You can ask me later. I don't want you to be too afraid of me. Uh, anyway, so... I remember I'm writing this stuff and I'm so angry. I mean, there's these people in there. And I forgot to tell you, like when I walked in with John, that, that workshop, he goes, yeah, I think you know a couple of the guys. And it's so funny how we have this reaction. I walk in and there's like one of my best buddies. So I was six years old. Kurt sitting there. And one of my guys that we used to do some drugs with, I bought from him actually. And he's sitting there. And uh, Eric. And I walk in and they're like, dude, I'm like, dude, what are you guys doing here? It's like, we're surprised to see each other. It's the stupidest thing. It's like, well, yeah, you, we drank together. We, you, we're all the same, you know, and I walk in there, but, you know, we go through this stuff, and they finish, everyone finishes. I'm sitting there, and I'm still back at home. I hate people so bad. I'm breaking pens. I'm stabbing my four stuff. Literally, I'm just like, breaking. I hate this one, you know, and I didn't realize my mom, uh, my mom told me, because I don't, it's like, I don't remember this, but my mom told me. That's how I know it's true. She told me. She said, yeah, you don't remember that, that time? And I'm like, no, I just remember, I, I finished those. She goes, oh, you were unbearable. I went, I never talked to you. She goes, you never... Oh, she goes, I'd go in there and you'd be like, I'm working on my first step. And I'd be like, really? She goes, oh, you were terrible. I'm like, God, I'm so sorry, you know. And, uh, but I was, just, I was just crazy out of my mind. I was writing this stuff because I was reliving. And this is the crazy thing about resentment. We're constantly reliving these scenes in our life, constantly reliving these things in our head on this resentment. Maybe buried down deep and I've shoved this stuff down, but that's where all that tension, all that stuff came from. It's, I got PTSD, weird stuff going on with my family. I got all sorts of weird, weirdo stuff going on. And I'm just like, just dying inside. And now for the first time, I'm actually talking about it. And they put it in a format where I could get the stuff all on paper and look at why am I having such heavy going of life? Leaving aside the drink question, it says. They tell why living was so unsatisfactory. And it wasn't because I was drinking the wrong alcohol or doing the wrong stuff or hanging with the wrong people or doing the wrong thing or drinking in the wrong town or whatever. It's because this is why my life is so unsatisfactory. Alcohol is my solution. It's my escape. It's my treatment for what ails Brendan. And I have an allergy which says more. Bad combination. And so I get this four step done. I sit down and do my fifth step and sit down with my sponsor. We start reading through it. And we're dealing with this stuff. We take forever in the beginning. We were talking about that, that long fifth step, you know, right? That, like that hour with dad deal. You know, Steiny and I were talking in the car today. And, and man, I'm telling you, it's like I had the same experience. We take a lot of time in the beginning. We're sitting there writing and writing and writing. I'm, I'm reading, reading, reading. And finally, we get to this one, and I'm, I'm going to summarize the inventory like this. There's a couple on there. There's one where it was this guy named John. And John was a really good friend of mine since I was little. We got busted. His parents ran the donuts after the church. You know, you go down, do church, and go for the donut. I went for the donut. Um, and so then we had the keys to the wine closet, you know, kind of deal. I got us in some trouble. Um, but this guy had stolen, uh, I wrote on there, John stole my Metallica collection. You know, 
you know, what, you know, what, that's what he did. What it affected, it affected my self-esteem. I start talking about like why, you know, and all this stuff, personal relationship, pocketbook, you know, and I'm listing all these things, the things he injured. And then we set them aside entirely. We don't look at my part, their part. They don't have a part. I look at my inventory. There's no parts. I look at my inventory, setting them aside entirely. I look at Brendan. And he says an interesting thing. He goes, you know what, Brendan? I know your story and I know what's going on and I know all the people who ripped off and all those garages you just randomly walked into and took stuff because it was unlocked. Houses you broke into, took that, took, stole from your parents, crashed car, all that. He goes, isn't it interesting that somebody does one little thing to you and you carry around forever and you're just furious. Like it's the end of the world. You just want death upon them. But you do it to everybody else and you don't, you hardly think twice. And I'm like, he goes, do you see your standard of living and how that might cause some problems in your life? Yeah. I get it. And he goes, tell me about your Metallica collection. He was a music guy. There was a lot of big band stuff, you know, and I go, uh, let's see, I had Garage Days Vinyl, Kill em All, Master of Puppets, Ride the Lightning, and I talked, you know, it was just a couple CDs, you know, and that one phonograph. And he goes, uh, number one, Brennan, that's not a collection. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm hurt. I'm like, oh. he goes, those, I can buy those right now. I can go to the store and buy them. That's not a collection. Those aren't collector edition at all. I can get it right now. And I'm like, oh, see, we, we wrap ourselves in these lies, these layers of lies. I had a collection. <laughs> and he stole it. Ugh. You know? No, I had a couple CDs, a phonograph, anyone can buy it. And the thing is, I don't even know if John really stole it. <laughs> True. The true story is this, my brother Sean, not even in the program. I was telling him this story one day. I'm like, you know, man, because he asked me about, like, how do you, and I told him this story. I go, well, you know, I like this, and I was like, wasn't even a collection. I'm telling this story, and we're laughing. He goes, you know, did it ever, con did you ever consider mom? I went, what? He goes, don't you remember? Mom would find our stuff, our rock albums, whatever. Like, we had metal church. She my mom freaked out. She found a Judas Priest album, Holy Diver, you know, or Dio, sorry, and the Holy Diver was the chain with the Catholic priest going, ah, the lake of fire, you know. She's calling the church going, oh my, did you know this was a ah! You know, she's like saying Hail Marys and Our Fathers all over the place, you know, like, holy water, you know, and, and I'm like, my satanic worshiping sons, and I'm like, mom, it's freaking Dio, Judas, what the heck, you're a metal church, what's wrong, it's good music. She's like, this is not music, you know, and, uh, and it occurred to me, I'm like, oh my, you know what? Because John denied it. He's like, no, dude, I didn't take it. And you know what? He said it with a reverence like he really meant it. I bet it wasn't. I bet it was my mom. I blamed the wrong person this whole time. <laughs> my mom never copped to it, by the way. I'll wait till she's on her deathbed. <laughs> I will. You think I'm joking. I'm not. Hey, mom. Final confession. <laughs> did you or did you not take my Metallica collection? Oh, you bet. I'm going to call it a collection, too. One more time. <laughs> you know, and, the, and the, the other resentment, I remember my sponsor stopped in his tracks. I said, you know, people who drive at you with that, the little I wrote, people who drive by and look at you with that effed up attitude. <laughs> Dead serious. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah. And I'm all proud. I'm like, oh, yeah, dude. This happens to me a lot. You know, and uh, 
And I don't know if it's because I got long hair, the mouse pouch, the Kill em All Metallica. And they're just like, whoa. And I'm just like, what? You know, and like people are driving by and I'm like, what? What are you looking at? What are you looking at? What are you looking at? You want some? You know, and pull over and I want to kill anybody, right? People are just driving by going, you know, and uh, I'm sure they're like, oh, oh, Pat, maybe we should stop by. No, Mary, he looks crazy, you know. You know, and, uh, anyways, and so um, I was, you know, and uh, he goes, that's not the reason at all, Brendan. And I go, how do you know? I'm telling you, dude, watch. Just walk behind me where they can't see you, dude. Just watch. They will look at me, every single person driving by. It's like, he's like, uh, how do you know they're staring at you? And I go, because they're staring at me. It's obvious, right? You know, and he goes, no. And I asked him, he asked me another time, I reply. He finally says, stop. Take a breath. He makes me pause. Sponsors train you what to do in action. It says, pause when agitated or doubtful, pray for right thought or action, right? He's asking me to please pause and pray for the right thought because the thought I'm having and the justification I'm having is way wrong, right? And he knows it. He can see it clear as day. And I can't see it though. I can't see the truth. The truth, strange, strange to say, and I finally goes, it's like, oh my God, my head pulling out my rear. And I'm like, I'm staring at them. He's like, bingo! Actually, he yelled Eureka, you know, but uh, same thing, you know, and he's like, Eureka! And here's his wife, Miller, I'm like, hey, we got something, you know, like, she thinks it's great. We've been in there for hours. She wasn't sure if I was alive, killing John, what was going on? She heard him say, Eureka! So it must have been a breakthrough, you know, she's like, hey, you know, and I never dawned on me that the only reason I know if you're looking at me or not is because I'm looking at you. Pretty stupid. The reason people were staring at me is because I was staring at them. <laughs> and they would eventually look, right? I mean, if you got somebody driving by and you're driving by and somebody's staring at you, you're like, oh, do they, is there something wrong? Can you help? And I'm like, ah. <laughs> the point being, try that sometime. Just try that exercise. Try to look at every single car that goes by when you leave here. It burns so much energy. You are so tired. I'm looking at the world and I'm trying to create this, this, this safe place for Brendan. If no one comes near me, I'm safe. If everyone stays away, I'm okay. And the, these walls are coming down and I'm finally seeing, oh my God, I'm causing my problems in my life. My entire inventory was 180 degrees kilter. I think it's this. It's actually this. Every single resentment inventory writing. Everything was backwards. There wasn't one that wasn't. There wasn't one where we went, Oh, you were so right. You were so harmed. I'm so sorry. None of that. Even if they were 99% to blame, the instructions say we set them aside entirely. Entirely. And there was some hard stuff on there that I had to write. And there was some stuff where dad was really at fault for a lot of stuff. But I had to look at setting him aside entirely. How am I using that today in my life? How am I excusing behavior, excusing victim, doing things, actions, playing this, playing that role because of that and blaming him? How am I selfishly using those things to justify my behavior? That's a sure ticket to death. And so we get done with this inventory and he says, now, Brendan, you're going you're gonna to leave here. And you may not feel elated. Some people do. My experience, uh, my personal experience is I left there feeling like, oh, I finally got it done. It was a sense of accomplishment because it took me forever. I was the last one done. 
And I finally got done reading this thing, so it was like, oh, thank God. This is just hanging over me forever. There's always this stuff like, oh, it's so hard and difficult. I made it hard and difficult. Because I I talked about how hard and difficult it was constantly. But when I just sat down and I finally did it, it didn't take me very long, actually. And finally, uh, step six and seven, when we get into that, you know, he says, these are going to start popping up. And what happened, my experience was in action, is I start walking down the street and we looked at character defects like gossiping. Maybe not starting it, but joining in. Psychopathic paranoid behavior. <laughs> Where I, I was convinced people were always talking about me, right? right. I think, yeah, God, Eileen was killing me the other night. It's like, you know, I had this thing about, you know, she's describing like thinking ESP, right? We think we know what everyone else is thinking. I know you're looking at me. I know what you're thinking. I'm going to kill you, right? And, uh, you know, it's like constantly I was thinking, like, I know what you're doing. Yes, yeah, they're totally judging me. They're totally judging me. You know what? I'm just going to stare at them. <laughs> That's right. Look away. That's right. No, I'm still staring at you. Yeah. Look away for good. There you go. Right? That's how I ran my life. And that's what kept me safe. So I'm starting to see like these behaviors. I want to do these things. And I can hear the, in, in the intuitive thought in my head. My sponsor going, Ah, you're staring. Ah, hey, dummy. Hey, dummy. You know, and I start seeing this behavior as it's happening. And the hope that maybe I can start seeing it before it starts happening, right? Before I start causing this stuff. And I start relaxing. And I stop struggling so much in my life. Because I stop committing and doing all these things which cause disunity and disharmony in my life with everyone around me. And the funny thing, what, the funny thing is, is if, if that's all I see, yeah, that's good, but that's not far enough. If all I do is I notice that I have a flat tire, but I don't stop to change it, that's not a good thing. Eventually, I'll be on the rim. I'll cause a lot more damage. But if I just pull over, take the time, change the tire, just readdress the situation... No big, life happens, whatever, do this thing and drive on down the road and be on my way. I get into this inventory, right? And I, I, it says, oh, we made a list. And that's why I said, man, if that was in the beginning, I probably would have lessened the prayer about, please give me some resentments. Um, but I start looking at this stuff. And the crazy thing was this, is that I was a real mental masturbation kind of person, right? It was like, I would sit there and look at all these people and what they did. And uh, a lot of my resentments... Because I wasn't a people pleaser. I was an approval sucker. I needed you to approve of me so I was okay. And so when we looked at this list of people I harmed, he goes, okay, you hated these people, but a lot of them, I just hated them, you know, like in here. But then after, you know, after I, you know, but I'd be around, I'd be like, hey, how's it going? Yeah, it's good to see you. Hope they die, you know, and, uh, you know, and, you know, I would just think these things, you know, and, I, and I'd start catching myself, like, going up to these people, like, in college, and I'd be like, oh, there's those people that cry, I hated them, but I should say hi, I'd be like, why am I going to say hi to them? I, mean, I, don't, I don't have to do that to feel okay, I don't have to, the outside stuff doesn't have to keep reaffirming the approval within me, constantly, the outside stuff to make me feel okay and whole. I got a God-sized hole that runs right through me the Texas wind blows through. Just right? It's a God-sized hole, and I'm trying to fill it with everything else. Alcohol, relationships, whatever. Name it. Ease and comfort, whatever I can do. Manipulating situations. 
right? And he starts seeing all this, and he starts going over the amends and says, okay, we're going to go to him. We're going to say, why you're there. Hey, I don't know if you know I was an alcoholic. It usually wasn't a shocker. Um, you know, Bob talked about that. They usually knew anyways, right? We told them about our drinking, but they usually knew anyways. I never went to anyone except for the people I randomly hit their houses, stole from them. Sorry, um, really punch them. You know, I just, I went to the house, I stole stuff, you know, and, uh, and they were the only ones that didn't know because they didn't know who did it. Anyone else who met me knew just by my behavior and it was, it was apparent, you know, uh, this guy's got issues and he drinks too much. And, uh, so I go to him and I start making these demands. Why I'm there. I don't know if you know I'm an alcoholic and I describe and say, look, I, as part of that process is 12 steps. I got to this inventory and I got a list of people I'd harmed and you were on that list. And they usually knew that. And if they didn't, they were about to find out. And then I would tell them what the amends was. And I would say this, the most important words ever. I was wrong. They knew they were right. And they, they didn't need me to say you were right. They knew it. They need me to say, you know, anything like that. They need me to say, I was wrong. And I recognize that. I recognize the harm I caused you. And I'm here to take responsibility for that. Is there anything I left out? And do you want to tell me how that affected you? And then the most important part, shut up and listen. And then the ultimate goal of this at the end is to say, is there anything I can do to make it right? Or make the books balance here. And then shut up and listen. Again. There's a lot of shut up and listening in that one. And sometimes this is the miracle of this thing. I would hear about things I did not know. I would miss the amends. I would study it and I would think, I got this. I got everything in here, all the harm. And I'd go to them and I'd say, hey, you know, I did this. They'd be like, yeah, um, you kind of did some other things too. You don't remember this? And I'd be like, I'm really sorry. I do now that you mention it. And I'm not trying to not remember. I just did a lot of stuff. And this, I can't remember a thing. I really apologize. And they would realize I was sincere because I, I was sincere. And they know it when you're being sincere. People know it. I wasn't fooling anybody. I just went, man, I am so, so sorry. But it's more than saying sorry, right? Amends aren't about saying sorry. It's about an act of amends. What can I do? And they would tell me sometimes, this is what you can do. I went in, I went to make amends. This guy, Chris, I had... This big, huge, I mean, this guy was huge. And I remember he was choking this kid in class. And I went over and I said, hey, I want you to pick on someone your own size. I was smaller than that guy, you know. And, uh, but, you know, do, 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 you know, and uh, so he puts me in a headlock. And I'm like, I'm not going to start a fight in class. I know better because I got to, anyways, my file was so thick, they had to start a second one. Uh, the principal uh, let me know that I was the only one they had to do that with yet uh, in my class. And, like, it was like a pride moment. I'm like, yeah. So bad, I got a second folder. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so this guy, I said, you know what? After school, behind the church, that's where we would fight, you know? It's weird, right? Let's go behind the religious center and duke it out. <laughs> weird. Um, so we go over there, and I remember uh, I got in a really bad fight with this guy. Just, I was a psychopath. You know, I'd been training since, like I said, forever. And I, I beat that guy so bad. Um, the doctor said if I had kept punching that eye, he would have lost his sight. And I remember when he showed up, his dad was in the office, and there was a long hallway, another office, and they put me in here so we weren't next to each other, and I was alone. And there was that guy down there, and he said something, and he goes, look down. The guy looked past me. I could feel him looking, looking. And he goes, where? And then Chris, blah, 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 says something. And Chris's eye is totally red. 
all the uh, you know blood vessels has all been broken out and and messed up. And uh, and he goes, that little guy. And then he proceeds to berate him in the office. And I'm just like, and you know what? I would have felt I would have felt bad if I had any type of understanding at that point. But I was still in that game, still in the game. Like that's right. And I just was like, another opportunity. That's right, me. You know, I'm just kind of, hmm. you know, and. Uh, I, I remember I couldn't find that guy. And John assured me, he said, you pray about it and God will put these people in your life. Trust me. And you know, you know what you say when your sponsor says that? You're like, okay, another little wishful thinking, right? They'll just show up magically. Sure. How about we pray for money then? They'll just show up. That'd be cool. Oh, I wish I found the gold. Oh, oh yay. You know, but uh, nope, that never happened. Anyway, so uh, I'm driving along one day, and I go over to uh, my buddy, my roommate at the time, he's sober, Eric, that guy in the workshop, we moved in together. And uh, I'm driving into this little strip mall, and I, I always pull in the driveway right by his work, but for some reason, I, don't, I have no idea, because I have no reason to pull in that other one. I even consciously had the thought, no, oh, let's pull in this, ex, this one early. Just weird, like, oh, whatever, so I just, you know, I just go in there. And I look over, no sir, I turn in like this, a, a section of that building I never turn in because there's no reason to. And I look over and there's this, and I look over and there's Chris standing in the window of this used book exchange place. And I'm like, you know, holy crap, it's Chris. And so I park at Love Music and I go inside and I go, uh, I'll be right back. He goes, what? And I go, do you remember that guy I can't find? He goes, Chris? I go, yeah. He works three doors, four hours, whatever it was, down from you. He goes, you're kidding. I go, no. And he just starts laughing. You know, he's like, ha, 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 have fun. <laughs> we do that to each other, right? It's like, when it's not you, we're like, ah, you got to make amends. <laughs> you got to say you're sorry. <laughs> hey, don't forget, you got to do what they say. <laughs> don't forget to shut up and listen. So I go down there and I go in the, in the store and Chris turns around and he looks at me and it's like a deer in headlights. He's like, I'm like, hey, uh, Chris, um, I, do you have a few minutes to talk? I know you're working right now. If you need to, re- I just need to, I, I need to make amends to you. Um, I need to talk to you for a minute. And he goes, yeah, let's go over here for a minute. We walk in the other room and, and, and he starts talking to me. And the thing was, he wasn't sitting next to me. There's a huge square table with a big pile of books. Chris is standing on the other side. <laughs> And uh, I'm on the other side of that. I realize that's, he wants that between us. Um, and I just said, hey, you know, I don't know if you know, but I'm, I'm a recovered alcoholic. And uh, I, I got sober. Um, I, don't, I don't know if uh, you talked to anybody, but um, not like headline news. But, uh, you know, but there's a chance. And he's like, no, I'm glad for you, you know. And he even said that. He's like, oh, I'm glad for you. And I'm like, oh, okay. And uh, I said, you know, I, I need to make amends for, you know, that fight and what happened. And um, I know what, uh, you know, I look back now and I tell him about how I was full of fear. How I was, I was really just afraid. The more stronger and angry and out here I was, was really just a sign of how weak and afraid I was. So when I see people like that walk in and they try to put the front of how bad they are, I know how much they're really just dying inside. I know how scared, how full of fear. And that's the crazy thing. If you'd asked me when I came in here and said, when they talked about fear, I'd be like, I'm not afraid of anything. I don't care if I die. That would have been my answer, and I would have believed it 
100%. And I went there and I told him that I had my attitude was just, my demeanor, they just know my demeanor was totally different and he knew that. And I just said, hey, you know, I, I really need to make amends um, and I really need to tell you that I regret that terribly. And I just went over it and I said, you know, is there anything I left out? You want to tell me how that, how that made you feel? He said, well, you know what? You don't know maybe is that after that day, my dad in the office when he berated me, he never let me forget it. He berated me the rest of my life because of that fight. I was never anything in his eyes because I let you beat me up. Because his dad was so screwed up in his little stuff. That's his junk. But that fight I caused, caused this separation from him and his dad and his relationship. Now, that's his dad's stuff, I realize. But I was an instrument in that. And so it wasn't just a little fight. It wasn't a little consequence. We got some suspension. I had negatively affected this guy's relationship with his father. Period. And I'm just sitting there thinking. I thought it was one of those just knock out nothing to man. Hey, sorry about beating you up. Okay, what can I do? Great, high five, see ya. You know? Nope. Every time I went, it was always something way more. And I'd be like, oh my God. You know, I'm not prepared for this. You know? And I'm praying. You know, my sponsor said, when, remember, agitated or doubtful. Pray. I'm going, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. You know, and, uh, and then he tells me, he said, all I really wanted. And at this time, the store full of people. He just starts sobbing. All I ever wanted was <clears throat> all I ever wanted was a sincere apology. And I looked at him and I started to cry. I said, man, I am so sorry. I had no idea. I am so sorry. Is there anything I need to make it right? And he said, well, my sister's dying of heroin. Can you talk to her? And out of these amends, when I made amends to these people, I go to them. These people I beat up, I'd go to them. And I'd go to this guy, uh, another guy I met, he said to the Alano Club, I said, some people go sober. He goes, yeah, I wasn't drinking in high school, man, but I, I hit alcohol and crack after high school. And I went, whew, that's a good combination. He goes, yeah, I'll meet you there. So I start talking, he goes, these step work you're talking about. And this guy, he goes, I never heard of that. He said, you know what, it's great news. This other guy, uh, Steve, and he said, you know, they got this new epoxy in Japan. I can eat an apple now, because I'd knocked his teeth out. He had this permanent bridge. He had to always pull it out to eat an apple. Permanently affected this guy every time he went to go eat. Every day. He had to pull it out and eat and then put it, wash it, put it back in. He goes, oh, I can eat an apple for the first time. God. I feel like a winner. You know? And I'm thinking, God, I can't I never thought I affected people very much at all. And every time I go to these people, tell them what I did and how sorry I am. And, I'm, and then he asked me, this is the crazy thing about it. These men, that guy asked me to help his sister. So I start calling to try to help her. I'd love to tell you how she was this great A star now, but she never wanted it. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if she's alive or dead. Chances are, probably not. And then Steve, he asked me, he said, man, my sponsor's not talking about any of this stuff you're talking about out of the book, right? Because now I've become what I hate. I'm a shiny, happy person. <laughs> With a big book everywhere I go. You can always tell them coming. They're carrying their big book. I got my big book. Mm. We're going to talk about how great it is again. You know, and, uh, and he invites me. He says, hey, will you take me and my girlfriend through? And I'm like, uh, or no, he said, me and this other guy. And I said, yeah. And, I, and then I show up at this thing at this cabana at this apartment building, this little house. And we show up and I'm start, this starts happening. I start becoming this ambassador for AA. Every time I'm doing amends, people are asking for help. Or can you help somebody I know? Or help? And I'm just like, this is the weirdest thing ever. I thought I was just to go apologize, pay the money back. And he always said, you know, it's not your money. It's God. It's their money. It's God's money. You're, you're a bad steward. Here you go. And he, 
he says, you know, when they want the money, it's with interest, buddy. And I'm like, ah, I don't, I don't like those instructions. Is, is there some, wait, where's the clause? There, I know there's one in here, right? You know, and, uh, but it's not, you know, and uh, I started making checks out. I actually was able to hold a job. I could not hold a job. I even got fired from a paper route. <laughs> Swear to God, it's stupid. It's a mindless job. Paper. Paper, right? I got fired because I. They used to put the inserts, the advertisements in there, and then one day they wanted us to do it. Oh. <laughs> the demands, right? They're demanding of me. Who do they think they are? So I would just take them and I'd chuck them. One day I was so pissed off because I had like three or four of them, and I was like, oh, nuh uh. And I threw them on the street in protest. It's like, screw them. And the guy comes down, and never forget this, in this Corvette. His license plate said, Dan the man. <laughs> Total 70s. He was still living there. This is like 1980s now. But I got like the, the gold chain thing. That, Dan the man. You know, the feathered hair was terrible. And uh, let me see your papers. He's like, yeah, you're fired. I'm like, he's like, yeah, nice walk home. I go, good. It's right there. I was right next to my house. Made him really mad. He thought I had to like walk forever to my house. I'm like, yeah, see ya. Here you go. And uh, um, I also had a job with my neighbor. It was uh, pushing uh, a janitorial thing around. It was just emptying trash. Unfortunately, the first garbage can was next to this thing that said Spirit of Washington. And it was wine. It was a wine tasting store. Their garbage was super clean. <laughs> I would take it and I would lift it up. Because in wine tasting, you just take a little taste, spit it out, whatever. And they wouldn't put it back on the shelf or save it. They'd just toss it. So I had these full bottles of alcohol. And I'd empty in the thing, I'd go back in the little closet, and I'd start drinking, right? I never made it to the other garbage cans. <laughs> I get calls, hey, Brendan, we're getting calls, they're overflowing. What? I was just down there. Yeah, I know. That one is really empty, that one's empty, but I can't, then I'm like, oh. And I eventually drug him along, drug him along, and finally said, I, I can't do this, you, you, you're done. And I embarrassed my family. Um, I embarrassed him, because that was a contract, he trusted me. Um, I had to go make amends to him. And he goes, ah, but it explained to him finally why, what happened, happened. He couldn't understand it. He's like, what is wrong with this kid? He empties one and goes, he's already there. Why doesn't he do any more? Never made any sense. And he went, oh, oh, and then he felt bad. He's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, what are you apologizing for? No, I go, I'm at fault. He goes, are you sure? I'm like, yes, I'm sure. And if I don't report this back to my sponsor, I'm going to do like 50 laps, right? So. So I tell him I'm sorry and I do this stuff, you know, and I go, you know, the hardest one I ever had to do was my mom. You know, my mom, the one I berated and told, I can't even tell you the things I told my mom. I was awful to that woman. And she still welcomed me. At one point she had to put the black plastic bag on the doorstep. <laughs> it wasn't even full. It was like my stuff, right? Like little, little sack. And uh, here you go, kid. I can't do this with you. And she, I'm like, how am I going to eat? Go get food stamps. I did. I had to. I, was, I needed to go eat, so I had to go over to this, this government service thing, and they gave me emergency food stamps. I crashed on my buddy's couch, kept partying, and uh, we ate well. And, uh, you know, it's like going back to my mom, though, and, and I go, you know, and I sat down, and I was like, I was so terrified. I was like, ah, oh, John, I don't know this one. And he goes, what do you mean? And he goes, I know what's going to happen. I, do you know how much money I owe this one? Do you know what I did? The car, I started adding it up like thousands and thousands of dollars. And he's like, uh-huh. He's like, she's going to make me work for like eight bucks an hour, dude, for the rest of my life. And he's like, you would be lucky if she let you. 
and gave you the opportunity to make this right. What are you talking about? I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> Where you have to believe it, right? You know? And uh, so I go to her and I tell my mom, and I just said, you know, I stole all this, I did all this, I did all this, I did all this. My mom stops, and this is one of those things where you just, I always miss the actual amends on a lot of times, and this is one of them. I thought I covered everything, because I wanted to make sure I did this one absolutely true, because I owed her the most. She never once gave up on me, threw me in treatment a couple times, always said I love you, and even when I was going crazy and saying you probably need a meeting, I'm like, you need a meeting, you know, back at her. <laughs> I did all the time. It's my program, not your program. And, uh... She finally stopped and she just looked at me in, in just a calm voice. She didn't say, I need you to work for me for $7.50 an hour for the rest of your life. You will live under my roof forever and take care of me and wipe my butt when I'm old. Uh, she said, oh honey, I'm just so glad you all lived. Dude, right here, just, just pierced my heart. And I realized one thing I missed. When I left all those nights, when I left and departed, and when I went places, my mom wondered, is this the last time I'm ever going to see my son alive? And not just with one son, with multiple sons. She had five boys. One of them, the first one, was like the golden child, top 1% of GPA in America, National Merit Scholarship Finals, what they call it. I mean, just super golden child. The rest of us, not so much. <laughs> we competed for records, right? Like, hey, 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 how many felonies do you have? You know, and, uh, but I realized that the pressure that she was under, I, I can't imagine. I can imagine better now. I have two little girls, two years old and four years old, Fiona and Nora, beautiful girls. And I look at them, and it hit me one day, and I just started crying. I was like, oh my God. I can't even imagine if they, if they start doing this, and they're leaving, and I'm wondering, are they safe? Is something happening to them that shouldn't be? Are they going to die? I can't even imagine. And yet, that's the life she lived. That's the amends I owed her. And so my amends isn't complete with my mom just because I went and I approached her. My amends is complete because I'm a living amends she knows I'm in Iceland. We talk several times on the phone, but she doesn't worry about me in Iceland. I don't doesn't worry at all. We talk about God. We talk about sobriety. She's at Black Belt Elanon. <laughs> Very annoying at times. <laughs> but she loves me, and I love her. I have a key to her house. At one point, she made the executive of her estate. At all my brothers. She trusted me the most. Crazy. We don't get whole just because we see the problem. That's not enough. I did these amends and I get into 10 and I start living in the now, in the constant. Like, I have to start, when I start seeing these character defects and things like that in 10, I start writing an inventory and talking to people. I start calling people like, hey man, I start getting current and honest and not just dumping drama, discussing it, looking at it from a spiritual avenue here going, Ah, because I can't see a lot of stuff that's happening in my life. I'm, there's something not quite here. I don't understand. And they'll say, well, it's obvious. It's this. Just like the other stuff in my inventory where it's so obvious to them but not to me. That still sometimes happens today. I don't have this magic crystal ball now just because I saw it once. So now I get to do that. 
And then I do look at 11 at night when we review our day and we have a set of questions. And in the 11, it says prayer and meditation. And you know what? I, I start my day like I always do. I have some type of spiritual book. Because it says the steps aren't the solution. The steps are the answer, right? They lead you to the solution is what they do. They're just a guide to get you to the point of the solution. That relationship with God as you understand God. That you honestly asked yourself. What does it mean to you? So I have the power in which I could live. I have the capacity to be honest. I do not have the ability. The capacity is there. The ability must come from a power greater than myself. Because left to my own devices, I do the other stuff, right? I'm not very good at living. I manipulate. I do things to get my way, my survival mode. It works in opposite of me. I get up this morning and I read my spiritual book. I read some material. I pray. I meditate. And I start my day. My sponsor used to say, if you leave the house, Brendan, without doing that, it's like leaving your house without your spiritual underpants. <laughs> and uh, he gave me great metaphors that I could use to laugh about. Because he knew that I loved laughter. And I loved, he knew he could reach me. And so I'd leave the house and I'd go, oh. And I'd go back. And I had to write notes all over. It's a new way of living. I don't know how to live that way. It's not like I just wake up like, oh, I got a new way of living. I didn't do that. I put notes on my clock, on my bed, on my mirror, on my, on my bedroom door, on the bathroom door, on the bathroom mirror. I put them finally. The last one is always took an envelope and I just put in a weird envelope, some kind of random envelope, but I put it right there in the front dash. And I'd blow, oh yeah, I gotta pray, I gotta pray medical, I pray medical. Like 20 times through my house. No, so, 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 stop. Don't leave the house without it. Your spiritual underpants thing, right? I get to my car and I, I promise to do them and I get all the way to the car and there's the envelope. I'm like, ah! <sighs> Off. Walk back in the house, sit down, do my prayer meditation, even though I'm running late. And the funny thing is, is there's this, this writer, Emmett Fox. And Bill W., Bill Wilson used to listen to him all the time. He'd go to the Golden uh, Madison Square Gardens in New York. This guy would talk to just thousands of people. In his writings, if you read his stuff, it reminds you a lot of the big book. But he talked to, there's this one part in there, he says, those that don't take time, take, not taking time for prayer meditation... It means you will take plenty of you will have plenty of time for worry, remorse, misery, etc. This thing about I don't have time is such a lie. Because if you don't, you're basically saying to the universe, hey, bring it on, buddy. I challenge you. Me versus the sea, right? I'm gonna hold back the tide. Things are gonna go well. And I'm wondering why I'm struggling, why I'm having problems. And the reason is because I didn't start in my spiritual solution. The spiritual answer is the key. And that leads me to this awareness and this awakening. And I'm not done growing. It will continue for my lifetime. It tells me that. I'm not some super AA guy or some guru or anything. I'm just a drunk, just like you. I am you. You are me. Right? We are doing this thing. My home group back home is called Shoulder to Shoulder. Page 152. I walk this thing shoulder to shoulder with the new guy every day because when I wake up and he wakes up, we're staying sober one day. Sure, I got some one days in the time. And sure, it's been a long time of one days. And I've done some things. And there's some things I can pass on out of experience and information from this book, right? The spiritual answer. But I'm shoulder to shoulder with these guys. I'm not above or below, right? My ego wants to be the best or the worst. How about just being a worker among workers kind of thing, right? That's hard. That's hard just being average, right? Average, say it. <laughs> average. It's hard to say, right? It's like, ugh. I might as well say weak, right? Loser, right? 
And when I do that, you know, I start to lead my spiritual... It's like when I start doing that, I treat people a little bit better, actually. I don't always treat them the best. I'm still fallible. I'm still human. Just because I'm in recovery and alcoholic doesn't mean I'm not human. I don't have faults. I don't have character defects. I give them all to God and say, every single one of them, good or bad, here you go. Sometimes, you know, God always makes use of what he has. And if you got a giant ego, well, you know what? God might use that in some way. You'll reach some people that I can't touch. And that's the step 12 thing, is that having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, the result. We try to carry this message to other alcoholics still suffering and practice these principles in all our affairs. And he talks about what that is. A better demonstration lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. I don't think it's by mistake they said homes first. Not a mistake. It's hardest for me to be, the, to be spiritual and to treat people the best at home, closest to me. You ever notice that? I mean, there's always the joking with friends, right? Like you treat strangers, oh, so can I help you? Blah, blah. Your friends fall down and you're like, ha, 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 ha. Right? There's that kind of stuff. But there's also like when you're at home and we treat people close to us, not so well all the time. It's hardest for me when I'm talking to my mom and I have to scream at myself in my head going, do you remember what she dealt with, you idiot? Stop being a jerk. You know? And it's that simple sometimes. In my head, I'm like, I'm sorry, mom. And I'll pause. And I'll listen. My mom wants to mother me still. It drives me crazy. <laughs> Seriously. We were just laughing about it the other day. And I ended the conversation like, that's okay, mom. I love you. You're my mother, and you're still mothering me, and you will always mother me, mother. And she goes, ha, 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 that's right, I am your mother. I love you. Love you too, Mom. Bye. Good night, honey. She's checking up on me. Oh, okay. I had, are you being safe now? Did you? I'm like, oh, my God. I'm 42. Stop. You know? And uh, you know what? I need to let her. I need to allow my mom. The answer isn't to fight her. The answer is to allow her. You're my mom. I'll let you mother me if that's what you need. You know what? How much am I really sacrificing to sit there and just listen to her? Really? Out of all the stuff that she's wondering if I'm going to live or die and I won't listen on a phone for a couple seconds to her mothering me? That's a pretty good trade-off if you ask me. She got the short end of the stick. So I have to carry this in all my affairs. In step 12, it's beyond that. So I start meeting with other guys. And you know what? We talk a lot about this. The people that travel with me, you know, we, we talk a lot about this. We know when people are in trouble. We saw it. We see them stop sponsoring people. I remember no one asked me to sponsor them for a year and a half when I first got finished. A year and a half. Because they knew how crazy I was, right? Had to wait for the new population to come in to know who I was. <laughs> but one day I go to my sponsor and I go, no one asked me to sponsor them. All these people. And he's just like, well, that's not what our literature says, Brendan. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, at the end of the announcement, we all rate who's willing to be sponsors, but that's just, that's just like an added thing in case people are afraid or they want to know who wants to sponsor or who can, who's been through the steps because they don't know who we are. He goes, but our literature says that we make the approach on the sick man. You're supposed to look for the face of hopelessness in this AA meeting and approach them. And I went, oh, okay. He goes, why don't we say a prayer? So we said a prayer that you know God would deliver somebody that night you know, and that maybe I could have somebody to sponsor. After the meeting, there's this guy... Bill, of course. Not W, different Bill. But Bill. And so after the meeting, Bill and I start talking. I said, hey, man. I didn't even talk that night. But we started talking. He just, 
It was that connection. So I said that prayer. We talked to him, and the wall came down. And we started talking. Hey, you got a sponsor? No, you got a book? No, you got. Here's a book. Let's get you a book. Blah blah. You know, I'm not not overpowering, but I'm just like you know. Hey, you know, like how would I want to be approached if I was this guy? That's what it says. And I said, hey man, well, and I, I made the option. I didn't demand it. I said, well, do you want to go through? Do you need a sponsor? Yeah. Do you want to go through steps? And he's like, well, yeah. I'm like, okay. Why don't you meet me at my house at Wednesday at this time? <laughs> oh yeah, cool, dude. All right, get a number, blah, blah, exchange, tell him where I live. You know, it's not too far from the meeting and all this. Then he calls me later. Hey, man. I'm like thinking, he's already canceling. <laughs> First guy, he's gone. I didn't even get to meet him, you know? And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like, hey, how's it going, Bill? And he's like, hey, good, man. Hey, just want, is it okay if I bring my buddy here? I was telling him, and he's excited too. I'm like, oh, yeah, bring him along. He calls me again. He's like, hey, man, my other buddy, Jason. And I'm like, yeah, dude, whatever. I'm like, hey, man, another guy, not different, Jason. He wants to come. I'm like, Bill, how about this? Whoever wants to come can come. He goes, oh, cool, man, later. Okay, see ya. Wednesday night rolls around, right? I open the door. I live in this big log cabin right out in the woods, and I open this big, huge, you know, open the door, and there's eight guys. God has a sense of humor. I don't have any fancy. You don't love me. Eighty. Eight guys. I don't have a sponsee. I got a workshop. I'm like, oh my God. I put him in, I go through my house and there's this little, another huge door out the back. I mean, it's a real old log house, a real log house. I open the door, open this huge door, you know, and they go in there and I shut it. It's got big timber, you know, everything. I shut it, you know, and didn't lock him in. That's from their side, you know, and uh, I shut it. I'm going out on my phone. Hey, hey, John, yeah, it's Brennan. Hey, hey man, you know that building? I got eight guys. And I got this tiny room. I'm not, I mean, it's tiny. I got like a single bed a little bit of room, a sauna, another little bit of room, and a bathroom. And they're like sitting around my bed like this and a couple guys on the floor and there's no room to walk. They're all like crammed in this little room. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. He goes, read the black part. <laughs> Click. Oh, great instructions, right? I don't have to think. I just got to read. And you know what? It tells me, share my experience. I start sharing my experience. And they're doing this, just like I was doing. Yeah, yeah. And then they start sharing their story and their, their unbelievable stories of like these moments of lapse and why they drank again. And I'm asking them why I'm doing the same thing John did to me. Yeah, now it's my turn, right? Oh, buddy. So, uh, why do you think you're an alcoholic? You know? I'm loving it. I'm getting excited. I'm going out there. Hey, man, I've got to this part. What do I do? And he's like, dude, just read the black part. It will, you need to, and he starts telling me, I need to pray for intuition. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. You're not passing on knowledge. You're passing on experience of the heart, the experience, strength, and hope, and the spiritual answer, which is God. May you find him now. And I was like, click. You know, he, he's good at clicking. That was back in the days we actually had a phone, by the way. And the cell phones now, it sucks. You're like, you know, little... They don't hear anything. We need an app that does the old noise. Click. I'm hanging up on you. We do that extra one, you know, when you're really mad at somebody. Hope they heard it, you know. Die, you know. And uh, anyway, so, so yeah, so these guys start getting, the crazy thing is this. These guys are excited. There's this group of guys and they're getting fired up and we're doing inventories and I'm listening to their inventories and I'm sharing these stories and these guys are looking at me going, no way, man. No way. You are not like that, dude. You look so calm and peaceful. You're telling me like you're like this psychopathic dude murdered. I'm like, dude, I'm telling you, man. And like every once in a while, someone would come in Alcoholics Anonymous who partied with me. And I would, there's one in particular, she came out, I was like 10 years sober. She comes in and people are like, hey, are those stories? She's like, oh yeah. 
that guy was. And she tells him, I'm just like, it's not a thing of pride anymore. It's a thing of like, hey man, look where I came from. Look what God did for me. What I could not do for myself. No counselor, no drug therapy. I live a life I shouldn't be alive. I really should. The closest to Iceland I should have gotten, if I was still alive, would have been in a prison. I might have got a magazine in the library about Iceland. <laughs> it's about as close as I would have gotten to this place. Because my family, that's where we go. Jails, institution, and death. There's a part in this book that says that the miner is like he struck gold, an unlimited load. But he can only keep it if he insists on giving away all the profit. Profit being all of his needs were met and paid for. And then all the extra went back to you. And he would always have it forever if he just kept giving it away. The moment he hoarded or kept it himself, done. Dried up, dead. No more. The reason we always have that our father is because the prayer outlines all our principles. My daily bread, everything I need for that day. Forgive me my trespasses, right? And those who trespass against us. Forgiveness was a huge thing in my recovery. And it was very difficult from some of the stuff that came forward. But I had to forgive. My dad's relationship was the worst. And that one was finally healed when a guy I was wanting. Never miss a chance to wash dishes in AA. If you got cups to wash, trust me, do it. I had the best conversations with people around some dirty, soapy water. And one in particular was at a retreat. And he said, how's it going? With your dad, because he knew that was a sticking point for me. I went to lots of therapy. And we did some good work. That's, I'm not saying therapy's bad. I'm saying I did lots of therapy, and it helped. But there's this one thing I just could never get over. And it was one day where he looked at me and said, Well, Brendan, is pretty simple. You need a new idea around your dad. I went, What are you talking about? He goes, You have this idea of your dad that he's going to show up and do this. He goes, It's reasonable. It's perfectly reasonable that you should expect that of any father. But here's the problem. Your dad doesn't have the power to do it, does he? And I was like, oh, I think he's proven he doesn't, huh? And I go, yeah, you're right. And he goes, it's, yeah, I can't remember the exact word, but basically he was saying to me, communicating that it's unfair of me to demand that of my father when he's incapable of delivering. And so he doesn't do what he can't do because he doesn't have the ability he doesn't have the power to do it. He can't meet my demands, even though they seem good. Right? That actor on 62, 63, even though our motives are good. My motives are good. Everything's good here, but he can't live up to them. And I'm torturing him, punishing him for it. And he pisses me off again. Well, I guess I'll just forgive the jerk again. Good old dad. And he said, and here's the thing, Brandon. You don't get to demand what that looks like. That new idea. You need to turn it over to God and ask God, how is your dad supposed to show up in your life? And I'd sat out there, I can't tell you how many times, you know, doing the, I forgive you finally and forever. I, sur I tried the Marianne Williamson thing. I surround you with light, you know, and all this stuff. And then at Fox, cease finally and forever. I let you go. All this, all these forgiveness things I ran across. And it wasn't until I abandoned the idea around my dad entirely, set it aside. Just like in the beginning of the step work, when it tells us to set aside everything we think I know about ourselves, our disease, these steps, and especially you. For an open mind and a new experience with myself, my disease, these steps, especially you, God. Set them aside entirely. And when I did that, and I asked God, how is this supposed to show up in my life? One day we were emailing, and my dad did the normal dig. I haven't heard from you in a while. 
yeah, neither you, jerk, you know, and uh, takes two to tango, you know, and, uh, and I just said, yeah, dad, sorry about that, you know, been kind of absent, haven't, we haven't talked in a while. And I don't know how it happened, but we started talking about the past. And we started talking about what had happened. And I said, yeah, you know, we probably could have, we probably could have been helped by some counseling. And he said, yeah, you're probably right. And there was a line in there that I don't know, it's just one of those God things. It just kind of comes out and you're like looking at the screen going, I did not just type that, you know? But I asked him, I'm like, I'm sure it was difficult for you, wasn't it? And I asked him how his experience was. Because when he left, he got kicked out. My mom called the cops and he left. Finally hit her for the last time. And the cops were there. My brothers actually thought they were there for me because that was normal. Um, But they were for my dad. You know, it's like, uh, I asked him how difficult, because after that, we were taking bets on who would kill dad first. And not in a joking way, in a serious way. And we'd plot around how we would do it and that. No, that's not. So we kept thinking about it. Now we'll get caught. No, that'll happen. And and then when he was saying that, he said, yeah, you know, he goes, yeah, it was difficult for me. There was a lot of anger. So in some ways it was easier, because I said, you know, it felt like this. I told him how it felt. Like, we, he got remarried and these adult children. I'd call him. He'd be golfing with all, all of them. He'd be, fit, he'd be doing all these things that I wanted to do with my dad. I got the crappy thing, and they get, all the, they get all the best parts. What's up with that? It's unfair, right? It's so unfair. And he said, yeah, you know, in some ways you're right. It was easier. And we started talking, and he said, you know, I know you like fishing. And you know what? The one thing I always... <laughs> The one thing I always wanted was to go fishing with my dad. I love fishing. I didn't, by the way, I didn't know what I liked when I got sober. I did not know. I forgot what I liked in life. Things had lost flavor. I went skiing one day, downhill skiing. I've been skiing since I was four. I was really good at it. One day I just stopped. I went skiing in sobriety. I'm like, oh my God, I love skiing. I forgot how much I love it. I bought, I bought crazy gear, you know, I mean, backcountry gear. I got trackers, body finders, basically. And, uh, you know, hiking up peaks and I'm mountaineering and I'm going down these crazy shoots going, me and God, this is awesome, you know, and I'm fishing on rivers and I'm fishing and I'm catching salmon and trout and all this stuff. I'm never, I have a lawn chair, a fishing pole, a toolbox all the time. Skis are ready to go in the winter. I'm, in, I'm enthusiastic about life. I'm actually enjoying life again. I'm standing out there in the middle of nowhere at times fishing. And I hear these, I don't know about around here what you have, but I have these red-winged blackbirds in the wetlands. And they have one of the most beautiful calls I've ever heard. I'm just sitting out there. And I get these moments where, like, you know, here's this, <laughs> here's this tough guy, right? And I'm crying. I'm weeping out in the middle of the wilderness, fishing for <laughs> wild cutthroat trout. Tears of joy. These aren't tears of sadness. Just overwhelmed with gratitude, just going, God, thank you. I have a life. I actually don't want to die. I want to live. I want to do things with my life. Thank you. And I would have just settled for not wanting to die. My dad, you know, that one day he decides he drives up and it's a long distance. He leaves early, comes to my house, gets in the car. We drive out by me this place called Anacortes on the Wash, a little fishing area. And we hike, we walk in. It's not really a hike, it's a walk in. It used to be the old reservoir. It's a very popular place, but that day, you know what? There wasn't one person there. And it was Bluebird's Die, Calm Lake. And I'm looking over, and I'm just in utter disbelief. I'm fishing. I'm looking over, and there's my dad. He's fishing. Next to me. And I remember I took a picture, and I said it to my brothers. They're like, no way, dude. You got the old man to go fishing? How in the hell did you do that? They couldn't believe it. Because he's a self-centered, selfish alcoholic with untreated alcoholism. 
But there he is. I sent that prayer out, let him go, and said, God, it's up to you how he's supposed to show up. And there we are fishing. I have no, I have no explanation. Stuff like that happens, I'm just like, that's God. I have no other explanation. And my dad and I are friends today. And uh, he wants to see my girls. I got married, had a couple of kids, I never thought I'd get married. Well, I never thought I'd get past 25. So let's start there. Never past 25, never get married, never have kids. Uh, you know, the spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. I just walked through the last uh, year and a half of my sobriety going through uh, a divorce, and it sucked. It ripped me in half. I could, July 29th, 2014, came home, not there. I'll tell you, there are moments in your sobriety. You just think, really, God? I'm 24, 23 years sober back then, and I come home to this. I'm on my knees bawling, going, what in the hell is this? Wondering, what the hell? One of my daughters is 11 months. She's not even a year old yet, you know, at that point. And, uh, you know, we're friends today right now, and we're, we're amicable. Um, but they live now up on the Canadian border, a ways away from me. I, I moved up halfway between my family and hers to be closer for her to her family. Because it was very important to her, and, and uh, I wanted to do that. And, uh, I get to see them every Tuesday for three hours and every other weekend. It's the way it is where I'm from. I had to fight for that, too. You know, and it was like, but there was a lot of this reliving. See, this is what happens. I start reliving. This is unfair, this thing I can get into, right? And thinking about the commissioner and the judge and, like, I'm going to kill them, you know? And uh, that'll solve it, right? And, uh, but what I had to do was the, the biggest principle it said in there was that I started using the steps, right? It says, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone. And here's the miracle of this thing. I could have gotten really screwed up and twisted around this. Unfair. I have justified anger. This is BS. And I could have just ripped it up. And I let her say whatever she wanted to say. And I didn't defend myself. I didn't run around in all the meetings and talk about it in AA and all that. I didn't. You know what I did? I called the, the guys I sponsor. And I met with them. I started picking up new guys and I started meeting with them more. And it wasn't a distraction. I still had to go through the pain and I went, I went to more counseling. It sucked. And I still go through moments where it really sucks. But I have a spiritual solution to all my problems. Even the worst stuff. And you know what? I don't have to drink. Because it didn't... It, you know what? I remember sitting there to tell you the total truth. I remember I was underneath, in the closet, underneath the stairs. Because... That's where I like to go, apparently. And uh, I'm there on my knees, and I'm bawling, and I'm going, you know what, God? Even now, I don't think about drinking. Really? And I was pissed. I was thinking, this is a good opportunity for me to just tie one on. Nothing. He'd re remove from me. I was pissed. And I was like, I just laughed. And I started laughing. Because I can laugh at myself about stuff now. And you know what? I walked through that, and I didn't drink. I am asked to be of service in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know why. I just am on different things. I'd, this goes back to that 12-step where there's people that you can reach, I can't. I may get up and do stuff like this at times, but the real deal is in the AA meetings, right? You see that new guy walk in? You can reach them, or new woman, for the women you know, you can reach them. I can't. Each of us has a purpose, and I don't know what that is. I don't know where I'm going. I never thought, one, I'd be alive past 25. I never thought I'd graduate college. I graduated with two degrees, sell molecular biology and English creative writing. I mean, it was stupid, right? You know, and uh, I was going to go to med school. Um, 
I diverted course, met my, my ex-wife now, but, you know, and we decided to go a different path. But, you know, I own a business now. I open an insurance agency. I have employees. That's stupid. <laughs> I couldn't balance any. I couldn't even have a, a paper route, right? Now I have a business. And now I understand even more what it was like to employ me. God. <laughs> you start to get stuff later. It's amazing. So anyways, I want to... I wanna, I want to say this, that if you have yet found a solution, not found a solution, right? If you're new and you're looking for the aha, I don't know when that is for you. I, you couldn't have planned it when it happened for me. But I know if you're willing enough to look honestly, it is there. Hook up with somebody who's been through the steps. Hook up with somebody who's been through the work. And if you're sitting here dying with years sober, I understand that also. We start to get into this thing and we think we can't go through stuff and talk about it. That's equally dangerous. So I hope that you heard a message of, of hope. And I hope um, that you will pass that on so that in 50 years from now, that's the great hope I have. 50 years from now, some guy walks into AA in my local community who has no idea who I am. But because somebody took the time with me, and I in turn paid that back to somebody, who paid it back to somebody, who passed it on... That guy was sitting there when that guy walked in. He gets the same shot I did when I walked in. He gets the same equal opportunity to live a happy, sober life. Happy about his sobriety. A message which is the real answer. Which is, as I already said, it's right in this book. The greatest secret was under my nose for years, and I never knew it. God bless and thanks. Woo, woo.